welcome back to Chris and Reggie's Cosmic Treadmill, episode number 51, where we go back, back to, the, to past the past and read a comic book from the yesteryear of publishing. You can find us every Sunday on chrisandreggie.podbean.com, and you can catch us on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and tuned in from Earth S. Chris. Uh, <laughs> continuing our 50th episode celebration now into our 51st episode celebration. We are going through uh, Crisis and Infinite Earths. This episode, we have issues three, four, and five. And let me tell you, that number five, five issue is a honey. It is. It is going to be quite a thing, because as if you listen to the uh, episode 50, you know that we're doing bios for every character as they appear, <laughs> and there's a scene in there that took us, it took us a lot of work, that's all I gotta say. We both it's had to true. attack it, and we, we, we attacked it from both ends, we met in the middle on that, that was kind of like Lady <laughs> and the Tramp on the list of uh, DC superheroes and villains. Absolutely. Uh, but let's, let's tell them what we're reading today. Yeah, this is, uh, as we said, this is Christ on Infinite Earths. Uh, in total, it's a 12-issue uh, maxi-series, mm. cover dated from April 85 to March 86, written by Marv Wolfman, penciled by George Perez, inks by uh, Dick Giordano, uh, Jerry Conway, and Mike DiCarlo, colored by Anthony Tolan, or Tolan Tony Ziuko, and Carl Gafford, uh, lettered by John Costanza, edited by Marv Wolfman. Uh, cover price, uh, I think they're all 75 cents today. I th- yeah, because I, I I number seven is uh, oversized. So, yeah, this one, this is all 75 cents. Oh, yeah, and then the seventh was especially priced, and so was yes. 12, too, I think. Maybe 12, too, yeah. Um, yeah, so we will mention that when we get to it. But first, we'll do a quick breakdown of the creators. Uh, you know, we did a longer one last episode, and we have even longer one in our <laughs> Teen Titans episode, and we don't really have the time for a full one, so... Marvin, Marvin Arthur Wolfman, born May 13, 1946, in Brooklyn, New York. Wolfman's first published work for DC Comics appeared in Black Hawk number 242, August-September 1968 cover date titled My Brother, My Enemy. In 1972, Roy Thomas bought Marv Wolfman and Len Wein over to Marvel. Almost immediately, Roy Thomas stepped down as Marvel's editor-in-chief, and Marv was hired as EIC for the Black and White magazines, and then both of them than the four-color comics at Marvel. In 1980, Wolfman returned to DC after a dispute with new Marvel editor-in-chief Jim Shooter, and with penciler George Perez, Marv relaunched DC's Teen Titans in a special preview in DC Comics Presents number 26 with an October 1980 cover date. They had a formal debut with new Teen Titans number 1, November 1980, and after a few short years, he was writing Crisis on Infinite Earths. Yeah, hop across the table. George Perez, born uh, June 9th, 1954, in South Bronx, New York City. His first credit was in Marvel's Astonishing Tales number 25 that had an August 1974 cover date. Uh, and he was a penciler of an untitled two-page satire of a, Buckler's, a rich Buckler's character, Deathlock. Uh, began a long and celebrated run in the Avengers with issue 141, that's November 1975, which ran all the way to number 200, December 1980. Uh, George would pair with Marv for the first time on Fantastic Four Annual number 13, this is uh, December 1979. 
1980, while still drawing the Avengers for Marvel, uh, Perez began working for their, you know, across the street at their rival for DC. Mm -hmm. Uh, he began drawing the new Teen Titans with that first appearance we just mentioned in DC Comics Presents number 26. Uh, Perez would take a leave of absence from the new Teen Titans in 1984 to focus on his next project, which is Crisis on Infinite Earths with his pal Marv Wolf. That's right, and here we are. Uh, but before we jump in, last episode we did a list of all the uh, JLA, JSA crisisovers. Crisisovers. Uh, Close enough. <laughs> cross, crisis overs, we call them. Yes. Now. Um, crossovers leading up to what was the relaunch of All Star, the uh, All Star comic in the 70s, and we kind of took it from there into an Infinity Inc. and stuff. But there were other JLA, JSA crossovers after that. So, in the interest of completeness, we're going to list the remaining JLA crossover, JSA crossovers right now. And. We begin with Justice League of America, number 135 to 137. That would be October through December, 1976 cover date. Crisis in Eternity. It was Crisis on Earth S. And Crisis in Tomorrow, three stories by Martin Pascoe and Dick Dillon. The League and Society Hang Out with the Marvel Family. Features the return of Golden Age Fawcett heroes, including Bullet Man, Bullet Girl, Ibis, or Ibis, Mr. Scarlet, Pinky, and Spy Smasher. The following year in Justice League of America, uh, number 147 and 148, that's October through November 1977, we've got Crisis in the 30th Century and Crisis in Triplicate, uh, again by uh, Pasco and Dylan. Uh, as the title might suggest, the Justice League and Justice Society team up with the League of Superheroes, uh, the Legion of Superheroes here. <laughs> uh, in Justice League of America, number 159 to 160, October through November 1978, cover date, that was Crisis from Yesterday and Crisis from Tomorrow by Jerry Conway and Dick Dillon. The Lord of Time pulls five heroes from out of the past and gives them superpowers. They include Viking Prince, Jonah Hex, Miss Liberty, Enemy Ace, and Black Pirate. The League and Society board the actual cosmic treadmill and fix things up. Not the podcast, but the treadmill. No, unfortunately not. Uh, we have Justice League of America, number 171 and 172. That's October, November 1979. Uh, the Murder Among Us, Crisis Above Earth One, and I Accuse by Jerry Conway and Dick Dillon. Uh, during their annual meetup, the heroes learn that Mr. Terrific, this is the Terry Sloan Mr. Terrific, mm -hmm. uh, though kind of senile at this point, has returned to superheroics. He had retired and he came back and he gets killed. Hey. Yes, uh, the heroes believe that they've got a betrayer in the midst. <laughs> That's the uh, it's got a cover where Batman's pointing like at the reader, <laughs> saying, "I accuse you." Oh right, of, uh, sure, yeah, yeah. I know that one. Um, so they uh, they spend a lot of the issue accusing one another of committing the deed. Uh, Batman and Huntress do the detective thing to find the real killer, the Spirit King. The story ends with the JSA leaving to pursue the baddie. The Spirit King. Never heard of that guy. No. Uh, Justice League of America, number 130, 183 to 185, October through December 1980. This was Crisis on New Genesis or Where Have All the New Gods Gone and Crisis Between new Two Earths or Apocalypse Now and Crisis <laughs> on Apocalypse or Dark Side Rising. So you have a lot of choice, folks, of what title sure. you like. By Jerry Conway, Dick Dillon, and George Perez. The heroes head to the fourth world. It was the story here. Note, yeah. George Perez takes over artist for the second and third issues due to Dick Dillon's passing on March 1st, 1980. Uh, he was 51 years old. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, Justice League of America, 195 through 197, October through December 1981. We've got Targets of Two Worlds, Countdown to Crisis, and Crisis in Limbo by Jerry Conway and George Perez. The ultra-humanite, who we're going to be discussing later, and he's a pip, uh, (laughs) recreates the secret society of supervillains using villains from Earth-1 and Earth-2. This includes Earth-1's Cheetah, Signal Man, Floronic Man, and Killer Frost, and Earth-2's Monocle, Mist, Psychopirate, Ragdoll, and Brainwave. Uh, After their victories, the heroes toss the villains into limbo. Now, uh, there was Crisis on Earth Prime. This took place in Justice League of America, number 207 to 209. That was October through December 1982 cover dates by Jerry Conway and Don Heck. Also took place in All-Star Squadron 14 to 15, October through November 1982 cover dates by Roy Thomas and Adrian Gonzalez. In JLA 207 is Book 1, Crisis Times 3. All-Star Squadron, number 14 is book 2, Mystery Men of October. JLA 208 is book 3, The Bomb Blast Heard Round the World. And then All-Star Squadron, number 15, is book 4, Master of Worlds and Time. And we end with JLA 209, book 5, Let All Acquaintances Be Forgot. Wow, what a big, chunky story, huh? <laughs> it's true. Uh, per Degaton discovers Earth Prime and heads to 1962 to steal a bunch of nuclear weapons during the Cuban Missile Crisis. The resulting nuclear war between the USA and the USSR destroys Earth Prime. The Justice League, Justice Society, and the All-Star Squadron go back in time and make sure it doesn't happen. So, that's all. That's why you don't remember yes. it. <laughs> and this is uh, this is got to be the one of the earliest uh, crossovers between titles, huh? I would say so, and and probably one of the biggest, ambi- the most ambitious sort of for the time. Sure, exactly. I mean, this is without stepping too much into our weird comics history issues. This is a total result of the direct market of being able to do something like this. But certainly, that's a talk for another month. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> we uh, last last time we talked about Black Canary and we said that the crisis is going to add a few more wrinkles to her uh, story <laughs> and we're going to get into that right now with Justice League of America number 219 to 220. This is October through November 1983. We've got Crisis in the Thunderbolt Dimension and The Doppelganger Gambit by uh, Jerry Conway, Roy Thomas and Chuck Patton. Black Canary's beau Larry Lance gets a mention and like we said Dinah's origin gets a new wrinkle. It turns out that Dinah Drake, who was Dinah, you know, who became Dinah, Dinah Lance, is mm. actually Black Canary's mother. So she is the one who fought alongside the Justice Society. Okay. Our Dinah was Larry and Dinah's daughter, who at birth was cursed by a wizard to have an uncontrollable sonic scream. And so, as any good parents do, they sent her to live in the Thunderbolt dimension, <laughs> where her powers couldn't hurt anybody. They have good daycare there, so it's all they right. Do. Yeah. They do. They do. They do. It's 24 hours a day. Uh, so that we remember that uh, JLA JSA team up back in Justice League of America 74, where Larry Lance died. Well, Dinah, the first one, died shortly thereafter, and the Dinah in Earth One is the one that joined the Justice League, right? Uh... 
You follow? Right. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Some, uh, basically, the one with the sonic scream is the one that's left. That's that's what I'm left understanding here, right? And she's the younger. She's like they made her into like a Silver Age version. <laughs> right. But it seems like long after the fact, in a way, like they kind of wrecked her in. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, take that as what you like. Uh, we'll be we'll see her again in the crisis. So. Sure. Uh, Justice League of America, number 231 to 232, October through November 1984, cover dates. It's Family Crisis and Battlegrounds by Kurt Busiek and Alan Kupperberg. Team-up that features a cameo of The Monitor, who we discussed exhaustively last week and actually did mention this book. Uh, Justice League of America, number 244, that was November 1985. This is The Final Crisis by Jerry Conway and Joe Staten, and we covered this one last week. It was labeled The Crisis and Infinite Earths crossover following Crisis number two. But in this one, the commander steals fight and Mechanique pulls the strings. This sort of that whole storyline happens here. Mechanique is going to be a lot of fun to talk about much later. Yeah. Now, before we hop in, let's uh, recap. Let's catch our catch ourselves up here so we know where we're at. <laughs> uh, as antimatter spreads across the multiverse, destroying various Earths containing different DC Comics intellectual properties and scenarios, the Monitor summons an assortment of heroes to protect the remaining planets. He does this through his adopted daughter and assistant Lila, who turns into Harbinger for the occasion. Uh, before Earth-3 is destroyed, Alexander Luther, who's the only hero of that Earth, sends his son away in a rocket that pierces the multiverse and lands on the Monitor's satellite, as, as luck would have it. Sure. Now, while getting Arion, uh, Harbinger is possessed by the dark force that is consuming these planets and uh, knows that she'll one day be forced to kill the Monitor. And uh, it's not going to be a surprise because the Monitor knows it's coming, yeah. too. Frankly, you wonder who doesn't know this at this point. <laughs> I know it. <laughs> uh, now, the uh, the Monitor has set up five towers in five different period time periods on Earth-1 and Earth-2, and uh, those should prove to fend off the antimatter for now. Uh, and the heroes have split into teams to protect these uh, these towers. Yep, and that's more or less, that's pretty much where we are now as we head into Crisis of Infinite Earths number three, Oblivion Upon Us. Uh, we're going to do just a normal breakdown of this issue. We're going to, you know, do our usual dissection of issue four and then issue five. Boy, like I told you, <laughs> it's going to be quite, quite an experience. So, on Monitor's satellite, he sits in an incredibly uncomfortable-looking chair high above the floor, and he's observing Alexander Luther of Earth-3, who's sitting naked in a bubble suspended by a chunky me mechanical struts. Uh, Monitor is amazed that Alexander has aged so much in a few days. He's now a teenager, I'd say 12 or 13, yeah. uh, 13, 14. Um, this scene also, too, is very much an homage to Kirby mechanics. Uh, he really needs to be seen, like, hard to describe. Uh, Monitor notes that Alexander Luther is a, an anomaly, positive and negative matter existing in the same form. This is supposed to be impossible. Something happened when Alexander when Alexander was flung through dimensions as a baby, surmises the Monitor. Harbinger asks the Monitor if he needs her, but the Monitor doesn't answer. And uh, this actually seems to bug her. She seems uh, a bit jealous that his uh, focus is split. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Harbinger visits the evil guy in the shadows controlling her. Uh, he tells Harbinger to kill Alexander Luther, as the dead can present no threat. I don't think he's ever read a horror comic, Chris, because if he did, Probably he would know not. that they always come back and, you know, knock on your door and moan in your face. <laughs> at, at the worst possible time. Exactly. Right at dinner, uh, you 
actually actions when they <laughs> <Yes>. kill. <laughs> you hang up from the from the telemarketer and then they knock at the door. Now on Earth One, but in a distant future, the Flash is running in a torrential downpour. He's recalling the events of Flash 350. This is cover dated October 1985 by Carrie Bates and Carmine Infantino. In this one, the Flash went into the 30th century to discover his deceased wife, Iris West, and uh, decide to hang out there for a while. He, he was done with the present. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, and we mentioned this as one of the pre-crisis issues featuring the Monitor last week. Yeah, but we, we did mention that it was the most nebulous. It doesn't really have yeah, a... But, but he's th- not really there, but it ties in enough. This, this is the crossover is that at the end of that issue he like vanishes and he's, he's doing gone, this yeah. super running thing yeah now I, I, as we go on here everything's cool everything's hunky dory but then the world starts coming apart uh, it's being devoured by antimatter and it's coming right at the flash but he's able to vibrate out of being erased so he vibrates right through the uh, what did we call it in uh in zero hour the entropy oh <laughs> something like that yeah <laughs> nowadays you might call it the bleed it has all kinds of names sure. netherverse sure whatever you like <laughs> The white stuff, we'll call it. Anyway, uh, over to Earth One, some of the outsiders and some of the Teen Titans are watching the top of the Empire State Building in New York City being devoured by antimatter. So let's meet some of the outsiders. In fact, we're going to meet all of the outsiders here, but only (laughs) some of the Teen Titans. This was a team Batman set up after quitting the Justice League. Uh, Let's open with Black Lightning, who first appeared in Black Lightning number one, April 1977, cover date by Tony Isabella with Trevor Von Eden. Gold medal winning Olympic decathlete and high school principal, Jefferson Pierce was born with the ability to throw lightning around, as well as absorb lots of electricity. He's also married with a daughter, which which was sort of unusual in the superhero trade, especially back then, I gotta say. Now, I, I love reading his early, his early appearances because he he puts on like a, a street accent. Yep. To throw people off the scent that he's that he is who he is. That's yeah, great. he beca- he becomes like a, a total BA. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, oh, yeah, he's sucker. You know, and then when he's a principal, <laughs> he's, it, he's like, oh, I got, it hurts you know, my... I'm, without going too far, it really you know there is a trade collection out there. It's worth checking out. It's a lot more of a nuanced character, I think, than people think. But anyway, absolutely, we'll, absolutely. Got a lot of uh, a lot of stuff to unpack. Let's get to. It. <laughs> <laughs> Let's hop into Katana or Katana. Uh, she first appeared in The Brave and the Bold, number 200. It was July uh, 1983 by Mike W. Barr and Jim Aparo. And this was a special preview of the Batman and the Outsiders series. Uh, Tatsu Yamashiro was a normal housewife and mother until her brother-in-law uh, killed her husband with a magic sword that was then haunted by his ghost. Uh, she now wields the Soul Taker, which is a, a super, sharp, bleh, super sharp samurai sword that's haunted full of ghosts. That's right. Uh, Metamorpho, one of my favorites, first appeared in The Brave and the Bold, number 57, January 1965, cover date by Bob Haney and Ramona Frayden. Uh, adventuring archaeologist Rex Mason touches a glowing orb in an ancient Egyptian tomb and gains the power to transmute himself or parts of himself into any element. The catch is he's no longer Rex Mason, he's Metamorpho for good, although he did sometimes slap on a rubber mask and trench coat. Which must have been very cute. 
Yes, it's probably very sweaty in there. Yeah. Uh, we've also got Halo. Uh, she also first appeared in the same insert in Brave and the Bold 200. Uh, yeah, her origin uh, might be a little too complex to condense yeah. here. Uh, but her power is that she can emit differently colored auras that do different things, including allowing her to fly around. Yeah, I mean, maybe, maybe it's a, uh, you know, I never really cared about her aura. It just, it gets so overblown at some point. She's essentially kind of an alien, but raised by she's aliens. She's an orb. Yeah. yeah, she's an alien orb who uh, who took over Gabriel What's-Her-Face's body after she was, after she overdosed or something. There you it's, go. Yeah, it it, it, it takes two it, years of Batman and the Outsiders. Yeah, it, it, it really does take forever. And actually, it's, it's really well done because it is kind of teased out long, but yeah, it's, it's sure. a long one. But Chris did a better job than I do, so listen to him. <laughs> uh, let's talk about the new Teen Titans, and these are, again, just the ones that are going to be in this scene. Uh, there was a Teen Titans before this, made up of all sidekicks that debuted in Brave and the Bold number 54, July 1964, by Bob Haney and Bruno Premiani. Uh, but the new Teen Titans were created by Marv Wolfman and George Perez and debuted in a special insert in DC Comics Presents number 26. That was October 1980. Uh, this was the sidekicks of, you know, the main, a lot of the main DC heroes now striking out on their own, plus some brand new characters, and we'll get to all of them in this series. Um, but for now... Just the ones that we see here. We'll start with the leader, Nightwing. Dick Grayson, the original Robin. Uh, this is after he, he ditched his garish costume for arguably an even more garish costume <laughs> in uh, Tales of the Teen Titans number 44 from July 1984. Uh, that was one of the, that was the second to last part of uh, the Judas contract. Mm. Uh, he's also, uh, he's an acrobat trained by Batman. So that's kind of his thing. That's... And like, that's <laughs> his that's his big claim. Yeah. That's, and, uh, that's all you can really say about him, you know what I mean? Yeah. That's his power, and he uses a scream of sticks, right? Or, or is that not even yet? I think that comes even... I don't think that's yet. Yeah, later on. So, yeah, he's just... That's, that's like a Chuck Dixon edition, I think. All the things he could do as Robin, he can do as Nightwing, and then some, you know? So there it is. Uh, Wonder Girl, now this is a tricky one, of course. Oh, yeah. We went through this in Cosmic Treadmill episode 25 when we read New Teen Titans 38, which is titled Who is Donna Troy, as well as two other Teen Titans issues in that episode. Uh, I think, well, one from the Silver Age, right? And then another one. We did the first appearance, right. and we also did uh, the Judas Contract. Judas Contract. So uh, it's a good episode, but I'll do the best we can to condense it. She was an orphan who was abducted into a child-selling ring and then gets rescued by Wonder Woman. For our purposes, we can say she first <laughs> appeared in That Brave and the Bold number 60, which first debuted the original Teen Titans, and her power set is essentially the same as Wonder Woman's, maybe like a notch less, you know, whatever. Yeah. It's at 9 if Super if Wonder Woman's is at 10 or whatever. <laughs> there we go. Uh, we got Starfire. She first appeared in that insert in DC Comics Presents number 26. Her name is Corianne. Apostrophe-er, so Coriander, uh, was a princess of the planet Tamaran uh, when the terms of surrender to their enemies required that she be sold into slavery. She gets out, now fights alongside the Teen Titans. She flies around uh, almost naked, shoots uh, fire bolts, and uh, is often wondering about Earth customs. That's right. Uh, she's also very hot-headed. She, she is quick to temper, it's true, mm -hmm. but uh, that she's sort of a fish out of water as... It's kind of her thing on the team. Uh, now, Changeling, uh, I think known better as the Beast Boy, especially nowadays. Uh, he first appeared in the Doom Patrol number 99, November 1965, by Arnold Drake and Bruno Premiani. His real name is Garfield Logan, and he contracted a rare disease when while in the jungle with his scientist parents. The cure for the disease required that he get blood transfusion from a monkey, 
which turned his skin permanently green. He has the power now to turn into any animal, no matter what size, but they are also always colored green, and Cyborg calls him Salad Head. Indeed. <laughs> we got Jericho, first appeared in Tales of the Teen Titans, number 43, uh, June 1984, and we call him Bull of Popcorn Head. Uh, he's the mute son of Slade Wilson, also known as Deathstroke. He can take over anyone by projecting, projecting himself into their body just by catching eyes. Yep. And he wears a cool vest. Uh, there's, another, there's another hero hanging around, Cole Weathers. She first showed up in the new Teen Titans number 9, June 1985. Uh, paranoid doomsday prepper Professor Abel Weathers experimented on his 16-year-old daughter, Cole, and she got powers. She can now fly and spin crystalline structures of any type. Never officially a member of the Titans, uh, the Teen Titans. She essentially only ever hung out with them and fought for their causes. So whatever you want to do, you know, maybe she, she didn't get the card, but she pretty much was a auxiliary member for a little while there. Um, now everyone's vainly trying to stop absolute destruction. Superman and Batman show up to confirm the fact that things are really messed up around here. Then the Flash vibrates into the scene and explains that in the future everything is being wiped away. Batman tries to touch the Flash, but Jericho knows to stop him. The Flash vibrates away, and he seems to be very distressed while doing it. We shift scenes out to deep space, where Brainiac is at the helm of his awesome Brainiac skull ship, noting the incoming antimatter. Uh, let's meet Brainiac. Uh, this character first appeared in Action Comics 242, July 1958, by Otto Binder and Al Plastino. But there have been so many changes that Redcon's made to Brainiac, you can almost say he's been a few characters with the same name, or maybe none of them, or all of them, yeah, who knows? Especially, yeah, especially in modern continuity, but that's Certainly. a whole other thing. Absolutely, and uh, the Brainiac we see here debuted in Action Comics 544, not very long before this issue, June 1983, by uh, Carrie Bates and Kurt Swan, uh, though the character redesign was by uh, Dan Mishkin. Uh, essentially a supercomputer from space that has a, really doesn't like Superman all that much. And, and uh, flies around in a ship that looks like his head, a giant uh, yes. radiac head, which I always love. With more. dreadlocks. Yeah, so. it's so good, like with tentacles, yeah. <laughs> now, uh, we shift over to Snowy Markovia in late spring 1944. As you might imagine, the place is overrun by Nazis. And has also sprouted one of those gigantic monitor totems. Uh, there we have the Blue Beetle, Geoforce, and Dr. Polaris showing up to protect that totem. And there's also uh, probably a good time to showcase DC Comics Army books. Yeah, while we're here, let's talk about Haunted Tank. First appeared in GI Combat number 87, May 1961, by Robert Kaniger and Russ Heath. This is the ghost of a 19th century Confederate General J.E.B. Stewart is sent by the spirit of Alexander the Great to act as a guardian over his two namesakes, Lieutenant Jeb Stewart and the M3 Stewart tank that Jeb commands. J.E.B. Stewart often appears in spirit form to dispense advice and is heralded by the wave of a Confederate flag. And there's also a haunted tech team that we don't see here. But we do see later, so we will get to them later. We will get to them. Um, just, yeah. <laughs> we got Sergeant Rock and Easy Company. There's Sergeant Frank John Rock, debuted in All Army at War, number 83, from June 1959, by Robert Kanika and Joe Cubitt. He's a—he's—he's uh, he's, you know if. if 
if you're in the army, you want to be good at armying, and he's pretty good at armying. He's, a, he's good at it, yeah. He, he yeah. does the job. Whatever you got to do, he's doing it. So Certainly. Uh, Rock's dog tag number was 409966, which had been Robert Kanega's own military serial number, which is a pretty cool touch. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Easy Company was a U.S. Army infantry unit led by Sergeant Rock that debuted before Sergeant Rock. That was in our Army at War number 81, November, November 1959, by Bob Haney and Ross Andrew. Uh, members of the Combat Happy Joes included, first, the Skipper. Easy was always commanded by an officer, usually referred to by Rock as the Skipper, and holding the rank of Captain or Lieutenant. Uh, he's often mentioned, but never seen. Yeah, he might even just be a scapegoat, we're not sure. <laughs> sure. There's a Bulldozer, a.k.a. Horace Eustace Canfield. This is Rock's second-in-command, holding the rank of Corporal. He's a big, beefy guy. Mm-hmm. We got Wild Man, a.k.a. Joseph Shapiro. He's a history, history professor with a red beard that would snap out in combat. Jackie Johnson was a former boxing champion and Easy Company's black member at a time when the actual U.S. Army was not integrated. Uh, How about a that? strange thing. <laughs> we got Little Sure Shot, a.k.a. Louis Kiahani, an Apache sniper who decorated his helmet with feathers. There's Ice Cream Soldier, a.k.a. Phil Mason, a cool character that also excelled at combat in cold weather. Four eyes. Uh, I bet you'll never guess. He wore <laughs> eyeglasses. <laughs> and despite his uh, nearsightedness or farsightedness, who knows, he was one of EZ's best sharpshooters. Well, he had those four eyes on. Zach Taylor <laughs> Nolan was EZ's original bazooka man who lost an arm in combat. Uh, long round and short round were Zach's replacements on the bazooka, always working as a team. Uh, Canary would whistle at inopportune moments. That's the guy you want on your team, right? <laughs> right. Uh, speaking of which, we got Worry Wart, who's pretty anxious all the time. That was his thing. Uh, <laughs> hothead, a.k.a. Sean O'Grady. He's a red-haired guy with a really hot temper. Oh, uh, also, he operated the flamethrower, so there was more hotness to him. Oh, I get it. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've got Beanpole. He carried the thirty caliber machine gun for Easy Company, even though he was the skinniest member of the team. The farmer boy was a guy who farmed, even in a war zone. <laughs> Also known as Flower. Aw. Yeah. We got Junior, a.k.a. William West. He, uh, he would lie about his age to enlist in the Army early. Lonesome was a simple farm boy also who just wanted the war to be over so he could go back home. <laughs> Nick was Nick. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> there was a guy named Nick on the team. Listen, I, can't, I cannot profess to be an expert, but I really did look up all these people and just a fellow named Nick. That's uh, Sonny, a.k.a. Samuel S. Gordon, he was always smiling. He was a very sunny guy. That's, that's awesome. We got Tagalong, a.k.a. Thomas. He shadowed Sergeant Rock's every move to, to include following him into dangerous solo missions. Uh, Wee Willie was a little guy whose name was presumably William. I would think so. <laughs> we, have, we have Tin Soldier, uh, a.k.a. Randy Booth. He was an actor before he became a soldier. Yeah. So, anyway, remember, we're in Markovia at 1942. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's right. That's right. we got to get back to the comic. Uh, Geo forces annoyed to see the Nazis wrecking his homeland of Markovia. He repels them by creating an earthquake. Dr. Polaris joins in the fun by incapacitating a Nazi helicopter. The Nazis have their eye on this giant yellow tower, and so protecting the tower and repelling Nazis, it becomes the same objective now for everybody. And then DC's another army group called the Losers show up. 
Uh, they first appeared in GI Combat number 138. That was October, November 1969 cover, and they were created by Robert Kaniger, a team of soldiers made up of previously introduced characters in DC's war comics. Kind of like a Justice League of Soldiers. Sure. Uh, Captain Johnny Cloud was, uh, I think, headed the thing. That was a Navajo pilot that appeared in All American Men of War number 82 through 115, uh, 1960 to 1966. We've got Gunner and Sarge, a two man team that had first appeared in issue 67 of All American Men of War. That was March 1959, before transferring to Our Fighting Forces for a 50 issue run from 45 to 94. That's May 1959 through August 1965. And then Captain Storm, a PT boat commander, and he dresses like it. He had his own title, which lasted 18 issues from 1964 to 1967. And hey, there's Captain Storm now, scaling the side of the tower. Shadow monsters emerge from the machinery and grab the captain. Then the shadow folk kill the rest of the losers. <laughs> and then pretty much all of DC's whole war comics line that we just introduced you to. So that was nice. Yes. Uh, don't 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 get too attached. <laughs> yeah. uh, Doctor Polaris and Geoforce discover that they can shatter these uh, shadow persons by using their powers against them simultaneously. Blue Beetle is scare- scaling the tower, wondering why the Monitor bothered to send him here. A shadow figure emerges and touches the Blue Beetle, and it bursts into nothingness. Blue Beetle surmises it's the scarab from whence he got his Blue Beetle technology that uh, that did the trick. Mm-hmm. Uh, he takes a tumble off the structure that uh, that he won't recover from, so the monitor zaps him away back to his own time, uh, where, where he's upset that he won't be of any more use to the monitor's cause. I mean, it's, it's like he's about to fall accidentally to his death, so the monitor, death. monitor just pulls him off the board, and it's like, well, why don't you just teleport him back up top, you know? Like, what, what is wrong with you? I don't know. <laughs> you have all these teleporting powers, right? Snap judgment. Now, and some of the, we did do Blue Beetle last issue, and some of these other characters, if we're not doing a bio, that last no. episode, I mean, listen to episode 50. Uh, speaking of which, back to Commandi's time, things are looking bleak for Commandi. Solovar, Dawnstar, and Superman from Earth 2. The skies are red, and we know what that means. But suddenly, mm-hmm. they are teleported away, and we skip on to the town of Coyote, 1879. The Wild West. Batlash is tossed out of a saloon for messing with someone's daughter, as he does now. He always does that. That's yeah. his thing. Uh, <laughs> Bartholomew Bat Aloysius 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 Aloysius. Aloysius. That's right. That's not true. <laughs> <laughs> you don't hear that name two more. Anyway, uh, Bat Aloysius Lash first appeared in Showcase number 76, August 1968, and was created by Carmine Infantino, Joe Orlando, Sheldon Mayer, and Sergio Aragones. Sheldon Mayer wrote the first appearance, though Carmine Infantino claims to have done a major rewrite. Now, Bat is a pacifist, a ladies' man, and a high-stakes gambler. Bat Lash is just one cool Western dude. That's why so many people want to claim ownership, I guess. Right. <laughs> now, Batlash is in town because he got a message from Kiwo no Te about a giant weird totem popping up. Uh, Kiwo no Te is Scalp Hunter, who first appeared in Weird Western Tales number 39. This is the March-April 77 issue by Sergio Aragones and Joe Orlando. He was born Brian Savage, and he was abducted and raised by Kiowa Indians, who naturally taught him to be the best at every survival skill. Of course. Who else could do it better than a white fella? Um, (laughs) Batlash enters a mine to meet the rest of the folk contacted by Scalp Hunter. And here's a name many people will notice. No, it's uh, Jonah Hex. Jonah Woodson Hex debuted in All-Star Western number 10, February-March 1972 issue. 
by John Albano and Tony Zuniga. Hex is a surly and cynical bounty hunter whose face is horribly scarred on the right side. Yeah, I wouldn't want to share like a dining room table with him because he no, kind of grossed me out. He really looks, his face <laughs> looks like it's half chewed. It's pretty sick. Yes. Uh, Johnny Thunder. This is a different Johnny Thunder. Right. Uh, John Tane first appeared in All American Comics number 100 way back in August 1948 by Robert Kaniger and Alex Toth. Uh, having promised his mom he'd never use guns, John Tane became a school teacher. But he still dresses up like Johnny Thunder and uses guns. Hey, what mom don't know won't hurt her, right? Sure. Nighthawk, that's Hannibal Hawk's first uh, his real name, and he first appeared in Western Comics uh, number 5, September, October 1948, cover date by Robert Kaniger and Charles Paris. He's a traveling repairman that dresses up in black co- cowboy clothes and writes wrongs or something. I hmm. Kind of just a cowboy fella. Good guy. <laughs> Uh, Nighthawk's the one that originally found this tower with Scalp Hunter. Firebrand, Simon, that's Simon, and Cyborg and John Stewart show up to protect this uh, totem. They quell the Western heroes pretty quickly. Then the Shadow Fellows show up to do battle. Again! That's right. Antimatter takes out the universe of Western heroes, and seemingly the ones sent by the Monitor, but don't you worry, we will see them again. Sure. In the 30th century, Antimatter does the same to the Legion of Superheroes, including a few new ones. Yeah. Let's let's hit them. <laughs> we got we got Dream Girl. First appeared in Adventure Comics number 317, February 1964, by Edmund Hamilton and John Forte. Uh, Nora Nall's home planet is Naltor, where virtually all the inhabitants uh, possess precognitive abilities. There's also Kid Psycho. He's just mentioned here, but he still first appeared in Superboy, number 125, December 1965, cover date, by Otto Binder and George Papp. Uh, real name is Gnil Opral, and he's a native of the planet Hajor, whose parents were exposed to radiation while fighting a space squid. Thus, he was born with an oversized brain and psych- psychokinetic abilities. Makes sense to reason. We got uh, Mon-El. This character has a very complicated history with lots of name changing, but uh, a lot of that happens after Crisis, so we don't have to even cover that. Uh (laughs) Mon-El first appeared in Superboy number 89 from June 1961 by Roger Bernstein and George Papp. Uh, When a space explorer with the same power set as Superboy lands in Smallville, they surmise he must be his long-lost brother Mon-El. Uh, you know, the the one presumed dead in the violent explosion of his home planet. Yeah. But hey, uh, he must somehow he got free. Like, come on. He did. <laughs> no, it turns out he's really a fella named Largand from the planet Daxam. Uh, but he keeps the name Monel anyway, because why not? Yeah, well, he got a, I think he got a bunch of shirts in, embroidered, so he was like, well, I can't return them, so. He wrote the name inside his underwear. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> Superboy sticks him in the Phantom Zone for a while due to accidentally giving Monel an incurable disease. But he's released and cured by Saturn Girl of the Legion of Superheroes, so heads to the 30th century. That's right, becomes a legionnaire. And then there's Element Lad, who first appeared in Adventure Comics number 307, April 1963, cover by Edmund Hamilton and John Forte. In real name, Jan Era is the last survivor of a world called Trom, where everyone can transmute chemical elements. His entire race was killed by pirates, though, and Jan mm. survived by having just been in space at the time. He was just off planet, came home. He was away. <laughs> his entire race was, was dead, and he decided, let me join the Legion. 
Sure. Uh, Dream Girl wonders aloud why she didn't have any precognitive dreams about the disaster happening in the 30th century. Monel and Element Lad do what they can to save the citizenry. Uh, Brainiac 5 and Element Lad do their best to raise Kid Psycho on the, uh, uh, whatever a future walkie-talkie yeah, is called. I don't know what, uh, what that is. Communicator. There you go. Sure, that sounds <laughs> um, But it, it's all moot anyway. They can't, they can't get a hold of him. He's he's consumed by the antimatter. Mm-hmm. Uh, Monitor watches this unfold on a bank of monitors. Hey, hey look at that. And says that things are moving quicker than he thought. Uh, instead of having days left, only hours remain. And then Harbinger appears, ready to kill her mentor and adopted father, the Monitor. Ooh, and that's the end of that issue. Mm-hmm. But we do have uh, some crossover issues to go through. and we're, These are all arranged, again, we mentioned last episode, per a website, comicbookreadingorders.com. So if you have trouble, please contact them and complain <laughs> to them. Uh, DC Comics presents number 68, sorry, 86, featuring Supergirl. That was October 1985, cover date, by Carl Kupperberg and Paul Hoberg. Uh, Superman and Kara Zor-El fight Black Star's attempt to collapse the universe. Kind of ironic, considering what's going to happen. Skies are red and stormy in that issue. We've got Swamp Thing, number 44 and 45, January, February 1985, by Alan Moore, Steve Bissett, Ron Randall, and Stan Wach. Uh, while Swamp Thing and Abby Arcane battled ghosts in an obvious analog to, of the Winchester Mystery Mansion in Southern California, John Constantine assembles some weirdos to deal with the impending crisis, which include Steve Dayton, also known as Mentalo from the Doom Patrol. Uh, Wonder Woman number 328, that's October 1985, by Mindy Newell, Don Heck, and Pablo Marcos. Wonder Woman and the Amazons do battle against the weaponers of Quard and the anti-monitors shadow monsters who have invaded Paradise Island. We'll stick with Wonder Woman and do issue 329, February 1986, by Jerry Conway and Don Heck. Uh, God of the Underworld Hades has thrown in with the ant... Are we saying him, his name yet? I guess we'll just have to reveal it. Yeah. The anti-monitor is the bad guy, folks, if you didn't know. Okay, because every time I've said anti-matter so far, I've it's wanted almost, to say anti-monitor. I know, I know. <laughs> okay, so the god of the underworld, Hades, has thrown in with the anti-monitor, but he's convinced to break rank by an Amazonian ex-girlfriend. Uh, much of this issue is given to wiping away some aspects of the t- Wonder Woman title, preparing it for its upcoming reboot. Uh, in the end, Wonder Woman and Steve Trevor live happily ever after, despite the threat to the multiverse still being a thing. (laughs) (laughs) Not sure why this issue came out three months after the previous one, but it is the final issue of this volume. Yeah, this is, uh, yeah, they sent her off into the sunset with Steve and then uh, George Perez, right? He did did the reboot. Yep, he sure did. So, Infinity Inc. Annual Number 1, 1985, by Roy Thomas, Dan Thomas, Todd McFarlane, and Ron Harris. As Rose Kenton, the original Rose and Thorn, dies, but not before telling Obsidian and Jade she's their mother. Mechanique professes her love to Degaton, but he, he spurns her, so she kills them both. Why not? Sure. <laughs> Infinity Inc., number 21, December 1985, by Roy Thomas, Dan Thomas, and Todd McFarlane. Harbinger shows up and whisks almost all the members of Infinity Inc. and the Justice Society of America up to the Monitor's headquarters. Mm, and I bet we're going to see them right now, Chris. Probably. Very soon. And now on to the main event for this episode, Crisis on Infinite Earths, number four, and thus the world shall die. This begins with Supergirl flying above the city while a familiar-looking storm rages around her. 
Uh, here's another character with a complex history, mostly happening after Crisis. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, uh, Karazor L first appeared in Action Comics number 252, May 1959, cover date by Otto Binder and Al Plastino. She's Cal L's cousin from the city of Argo, which exploded whole from the surface of Krypton, then drifted through space in a protective bubble. Since the rock they're on turns to kryptonite, they protect everyone with lead shielding, but then meteors puncture the lead shielding and lethal radiation pours out, so they put teenage Kara in a rocket and send her to meet her cousin. Uh, she hangs out with a lot with the Legion of Superheroes, and at the time of this series, she'd recently broken up with Brainiac 5. Yeah, she's thinking to herself, I haven't heard from Barbara in months. She sounded so frightened, not that I blame her, but I've lived through my planet crumbling around me. I've experienced firsthand the terror you feel as your world died. Not even my cousin Kal-El can say that. He was still an infant when he was rocketed from Krypton. What do you want, a medal? I mean, come on. <laughs> uh, Supergirl meets Batgirl perched on a roof, waiting, watching the world end through binoculars. Uh, there were a few Batgirls over the years, but the one we're concerned with debuted in Detective Comics number 359, January 1967, by Gardner Fox and Carmine Infantino. Though Bill Dozier, who produced the Batman television show from 1966 to 1968, could really be credited with creating Batgirl. He's the one that kind of brought her back. He wanted a female hero on the show and came up with the idea of creating and using the character of Commissioner Gordon's daughter. He had Carmine Infantino draw up some costume designs, and he thought they were good enough to be in the comics. So, like we mentioned, Batgirl is Commissioner Gordon's daughter, Barbara Gordon, who has a Ph.D. in library science and later becomes a senator in Washington, D.C., but right now, Barbara is feeling scared. Yeah, Supergirl tries to uh, comfort her. I'm scared too, but I can't let that stop me from doing what I have to do. Easy for you to say. Look at your powers. I'm nothing. I don't think I was ever cut out for playing hero. Barbara, there are thousands of people out there without powers like mine. The police, firemen, soldiers, they're all ordinary people trying to, their best to keep this world from falling apart before it's time. Uh-oh. With her telescopic vision, Supergirl sees a small plane north of the city. It's falling apart, headed right for the antimatter. Supergirl rescues the pilot before he's consumed by nothingness, and this only makes Batgirl feel more useless. <laughs> Over at Steve Dayton's well-appointed mansion, he and John Constantine are having some brandy as the world disintegrates around them. <laughs> Let's meet Steve Dayton. Uh, the guy known as Mento first appeared in Doom Patrol number 91, covered date November 1964 by Arnold Drake and Bruno Primiani. With the help of a special helmet, a Mento helmet even, mm. he has strong telekinetic power he marries Elastigirl, that's Rita Farr of the Doom Patrol, and they adopt Beast Boy. While we're at it, let's meet John Constantine, or is it Constantine? I think it's actually Constantine, but here in the U.S. we tend to do the teen, and we, we can stick with that. Yeah, I don't think time makes... It doesn't work with my with my tongue. No. Uh, <laughs> either way, he first appeared in Saga of the Swamp Thing, number 37. This is June 1984 by Alan Moore, Steve Bissett, and John Toddleman. He's a British musician who looks a lot like the musician... Sting. He's a British magician who looks like the musician Sting mm -hmm. and routinely screws over everyone he meets. He also chain smokes silk-cut cigarettes. He's always got a cigarette in his mouth. Yep. Uh, John Constantine has a plan, and it involves Swamp Things, both things that are expanded upon more in those Saga of the Swamp Thing crossover issues. Yeah. Uh, Pariah finds himself, guess where? 
on another Earth being destroyed by antimatter. This time it's Earth 6. He says, It happens again and again, and I, I can do nothing to stem its destructive tide. But why must I witness such horror? Why? Why? We say the same thing every time Pariah pops on panel. Yeah, really. Uh, <laughs> this world has no duplicates from other Earths, and it has its own band of superheroes. Seems there's a Lady Quark, a Lord Volt, and their daughter Liana. Uh, Lord Volt accosts Pariah. And so Lord Volt says, Stranger, my analyzers discovered your presence here on Earth. I am Lord Volt. Why did you attack us? What do you want from us? I... I am Pariah, not the one you seek. I have nothing to do with any of this. That's a likely story. Yeah, I don't buy it. Lord Vault replies with, You lie. <laughs> Yours is the only alien presence my analyzers have sensed. Tell me now, or my electrical powers will burn you where you stand. N no, Lord Vault, don't touch me. You don't realize what... And then Lord Volt places his hand on Pariah's shoulder, and the feedback gives him a terrific shock that goes scrack. Oh, my energy comes back at me. Lady Quark, with some sort of pink energy power, and their daughter Liana, use some kind of super plant-growing ability, enter the fray. But it's for nothing, as Lord Volt and Liana are consumed by the antimatter. Uh-oh. We barely knew him. Uh, Pariah throws on his hood and grabs Lady Quark as he's whisked away, taking her with them. She's not thrilled about living while the rest of the family dies, but what are you going to do? So back on the monitor satellite, he seems to have gotten over the fact that Harbinger was threatening his life at the end of the last issue. <laughs> yeah, bygones be bygones. The monitor goes, my enemy comes ever closer, and with the death of Earth-1, he shall gain that much more power. Then none will be power enough, powerful enough to stop him. But there is still one chance. My new warrior. Night Thrasher? Speedball. Ah, with the press of a button, the satellite shoots a beam of energy towards Earth-1, right at an observatory in Japan, where a bunch of scientists in, in that observatory are freaking out about the impending antimatter. One of whom is Professor Tazu, who says, The antimatter comes too quickly. There is no way to avoid it. I know. Already it has destroyed vast areas and high altitudes. And then in comes Dr. Kim Yohoshi, who says, It is wrong to act like the coward you are, Professor Tezu. We have work to do here. I do not pay you to play games. But, Dr. Hoshi... Silence, you miserable toad. We were given the assignment of charting this phenomenon, not of giving in to your baser instincts. Hmm. And then Dr. Hoshi's father, who's also employed at this laboratory, pipes in and says, Gimyo, I did not raise my daughter to be so cold. These men are frightened. And you rise to their defense, father. You are as weak as they. No wonder mother left you. All right, go. Run to your loved ones. Leave me alone. If I am to perish, I do not want to die in the midst of cowards. Damn, she went there, didn't she? Yikes. Uh, now, Dr. Hoshi sits at the telescope to watch the starry skies and see the monitor's bolt of energy heading right toward her. Uh, it tears through the observatory, and Dr. Hoshi lets out a chilling, Yug! <laughs> and somehow, she's gone. Her father says he will still love her. 
which is probably of you know very little comfort to a mean lady like that. Yeah, I'm not sure she'll still love him, quite frankly. No, but I'm not sure she loves him now. I think I think she's already over him. <laughs> uh, now let's check in our folks back at that satellite who are in their private chambers thinking aloud. Yes, the monitor says. What your daughter becomes, Dr. Hoshi, will amaze you should this planet survive my rival's threat. Even now, she's being recreated. And Harbinger says, I feel him, Monitor, controlling me, filling me with hate for you. I must destroy you, Monitor, for I can do nothing else. And Alexander Luther is uh, thinking to himself, Harbinger's gonna kill him now. Monitor told me what was going to happen. My heart reaches out for her, for her struggles to resist the other one's calling. She's in pain, for she does not realize that by killing the Monitor, she's actually serving his needs. So, Lila, do what you must. You and I have a destiny we must fulfill. Now, back in that still shadowy realm of the bad dudes that we know now is the anti-monitor, our still hidden malefactor, though, observes the red tornado saving people from crisis-born disasters. Now, the red tornado sort of first appeared in as Althun in Mystery in Space, number 61, August 1960, by Godna Fox and Dick Dillon. Althun was the tornado champion of the planet Ran, or Ron, uh, who decided to be good for no better reason than in, you know, being inherently good to do so. Yeah, he, just, he, he kind of weighed <laughs> the options. He was like, eh, being good feels better, that's all. Yeah, I like good. Um, the red tornado is an android created by Professor T.O. Morrow and imbued with the very uh, body of Althun. First appearing in Justice League of America number 64. This is August 1968 by Fox and Dylan. Uh, he has a tornado making powers and he flies around in a tornado. Pretty much, you know, the, it's yeah. in the name so you can figure it out. Psycho Pirate says, Look at him! He doesn't know how he's going to be used by us, does he? Ha ha! I'm so excited! I made the right choice joining forces with you! I don't remember it being put up to a vote. No. <laughs> you were kind of just snagged. Yeah. Uh, the Red Tornado is teleported to the bad guy's location, much to his surprise. Hiya, robot. Or are you an android? A cyborg, maybe? I never can remember. The Red Tornado says, where am I? You are the psycho pirate. You manipulate emotion. I tell you, these walking computers don't forget a thing. Ready? Glad to have you on our side. Then the big bad chimes in with, Once more, pirate, and you'll be replaced by the girl called Phobia. She will more than suffice. Now, we don't see her here, but they mention her. Uh, mm -hmm. Phobia first appeared in New Teen Titans number 14, December 1981, by Wolfman and Perez. Her name is Angela Hawkins III, was a bad seed who rejected any help from her well-off family. Joined up with the Brotherhood of Evil for kicks. Phobia's natural-born psychic powers allow her to complete complete and total mastery over the fear centers of the human mind. The Red Tornado goes, Who are you? Why was I brought here? Are you the one responsible for the madness that is on Earth? More than just your Earth, Android. Now come, we have a universe to destroy. Now we head back to Earth 2, but now we're in the time of Arthur and the Round Table. 
And uh, there's another giant yellow tower there. For mm. some reason, only Firestorm and Killer Frost are sent to guard this one. It's like the monitor broke his rule of threes. I, uh, yeah. I don't know why. Uh, Vandal Savage stands at the window of a castle, which it's probably belongs to him. He's surveying the red skies in chaos. Vandal Savage first appeared in Green Lantern number 10, December 1943, by Alfred Bester and Martin Nodell. Vandal was a caveman in the year 50,000 BC when radiation from a meteorite made him super smart and immortal. Hmm. Then the Shining Knight shows up. The Shining Knight first appeared in Adventure Comics number 66, all the way back in September 1941 by Craig Flessel. Sir Justin, the newest member of the Knights of the Round Table in King Arthur's Court, gets invulnerable golden armor, a sword that can cut through anything which is helpful, and an unkillable flying horse named Winged Victory. Just for freeing him from a tree. Uh, this is the new guy. You know, look at all this yeah. time. Give me a break. How do you, how do you think, uh, you know, Lancelot been felt? Wa- I've been like, working here 15 I years. I'm using the same <laughs> iron sword forever. Uh, Firestorm says, hey, Sir Justin, how's it going? By my troth. Winged victory, those fancily gobbed strangers spoke my true name. But how could they? Hold. There is the answer, my faithful steed. They are evil wizards, and they cast their demons at me. And here come the shadow beings right on right on time. <laughs> uh, this team actually fares a little better against them than the previous ones. They seem to have like the right combo of powers. For example, Shining Knight is able to shatter one with a beam from his sword, just dead on. Mighty convenient. Uh, Vandal Savage merely looks on in shock. Yeah, he says, Shadows emerging from that machine. Was I wrong about the strangers? I must know more if I am ever to control this world. Well, you know, don't strain yourself standing at that window and watching. (laughs) I'm not doing anything. (laughs) Then all the shadow creatures from every earth and every time merge into respective giant shadow humanoids. These shadow giants menace the towers in their times and places. Starfire has an idea, therefore, to, you know, destroy those towers. (laughs) (laughs) Why not? It's like, oh, (laughs) the thing we were sent to protect, let's just destroy them now. Like, why? Halo thinks that's a capital idea, and they and she joins right in. Uh, then the new Dr. Light shows up and tells everyone to stop. Unfortunately, she does so in Japanese, <laughs> which she only speaks, but we don't. We don't, but we can do insensitive accents. So she says, you stupid cretins, you don't realize what you are doing. Get back and leave this vibrational fork alone. It is all that can save our planet. Now, Starfire notes that it's a woman wearing Dr. Light's costume, so I guess we're going to have to... Yeah, the original Dr. Light first appeared in Justice League of America, number 12, June 1962, by Gardner Fox and Mike Sikowski. Uh, He has no real origin to this point, except that he's a criminal physicist named Arthur Light, who uses light-based gimmicks to commit crimes and capture superheroes. His powers were derived from technology, unlike the new Dr. Light, where they're derived from the Monitor. Uh, much later, his character takes on a much darker tone, but that's a crisis for another day. <laughs> Certainly. Uh, the new Dr. Light, Kim Yoshi, can perform light stunts right out of her body, and she blasts a bright one that knocks Starfire and Halo out of the sky. Luckily, Superman can speak Japanese, along with Katana, who's also hanging around. Right. <laughs> Superman asks Dr. Light for some information. She says, Cannot any of you think, man... Cannot any of you think, man, I tell you, this world is populated by morons. You can understand me, so listen. 
Already, hundreds of universes have been destroyed. Now, the antimatter sweeps through our universe, and only I can help save us. Do you understand? I'm not sure if Superman understands, but he replies with, Well, what can I do to save our world? Tell me, and I'll sacrifice my own life if need be. You know, Superman, maybe this isn't your rodeo. You know, it's like, Maybe not. So quick to sack, you know, I'll do whatever I have to. <laughs> Tie know. me to the train tracks. Yeah, there's a lot, there's a lot of people here to help out. Uh, on Paradise Island, Wonder Woman is trying to recruit Amazon to join in the fight against the end of the world. Uh, now, Wonder Woman, have we really not seen her yet in this series? I, I was kind of. I don't think I don't so. Think yeah. Wow. I, you know, I, yeah, I looked back, but she first appeared in All Star Comics number eight, October 1941, by William Bolton Marston and Harry G. Peter, who goes uncredited for that story, but we know it was him. Uh, Wonder Woman was another has another twisted and complex history in the DCU. And at this point, she's rolling with like three or four <laughs> origins, uh, kind of that don't conflict but do a little bit. The basics of it are that she's Diana Prince of the Amazons who fell in love with military airman Steve Trevor and followed him back to man's world. Uh, she's a founding member of the Justice League and flies around uh, by on her own power, I think, at this point still, and is as strong as Superman, but she has a lasso of truth and an invisible airplane that I, I believe the invisible airplane would still be in play here in uh, Christ so. this time. Now back to the monitor satellite, of course. He, he is feeling weaker as more and more worlds fall. As he goes, it, it is happening all too fast. He saps my strength as each universe dies. And though the warriors I sent through time and space fight valiantly, all is not yet ready. But in what time remains, I cannot surrender. I, Harbinger, the Luthor child, and Pariah are all that stand between... Wait... He comes at last. Perhaps there is still hope. Oh, great. Pariah just showed up. Yeah. Uh, Monitor explains that he's the one that's been sending Pariah around to witness repeated genocides. And Pariah ain't very pleased to hear that information. No, he says, What? You're the one who did this to me? You made me suffer the pains of untold millions. I sacrificed much of my own life to see that you lived. You should be grateful. Grateful? You're insane. I should kill you for what you've done. Oh, that'd be funny. Uh, <laughs> Pariah further points out that the Monitor is pretty sick for watching this debacle himself. But the Monitor has a plan. A very complex plan that can only be revealed in parts. Apparently, yeah. <laughs> you can't handle it all at once. Uh, the monitor explains that the giant towers on Earth 1 and Earth 2 at various points in time are meant to bring the two worlds together. This will forestall their com consumption by antimatter for at least a little while. Then Harbinger shows up, and she's looking all crazy and black-eyed. She says, Too late, old fool. You? Welcome. I've been waiting for you, Lila. Do what you must. Harbinger. Call me Harbinger, you dealt. N no. P please stop me. Don't let me do this. You saved me. Raised me. I love... I love... He commands me now, Monitor. And at his command is... Death! At, the, at which time, Harbinger shoots a double-fisted blast at the monitor, ripping his armor apart. Uh, the armor was probably just for show, anyway. Yeah, there wasn't a lot of uh, Harbinger, frankly. <laughs> no. <laughs> it, it, would, it would make a nice action figure. Right. Um, Harbinger turns back into Lila and falls into the abyss of the satellite. Meanwhile, Pariah is freaking out. 
Monitor, please explain it to me. Tell me what to do. Tell me how to activate these machines. No use. He is dead. And I, who have seen death all too close, know he cannot be saved. I do not know what happened here. Do not know who any of them were. But I fear I have just seen the end of everything. The end of all hope. Then a caption follows that says, He has seen death and dying. Universes crumble about him. Yet somehow he believed there was somewhere a plan, a way to fight it. Some hope yet realized. Now there is nothing. And the man called Pariah can only cry. What else has he been doing? I I think he has another ability. I thought he only cried. That was it. Pariah the Crier. (laughs) The caption continues. For these worlds, these universes must now die. And the next two pages are like a sequence of panels gradually fading to white. Really well done in a way. I don't. I'm not sure if they if they copied and sort of through white ink on it or how how it was done necessarily. And then the last two pages are nine grid panel gradually swelling with blackness. Uh, actually, it's the last page, not the last two pages. Until the last panel is totally black and it's to be continued, dot, 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 question mark. And it is to be continued after mm. a break. And I know it's strange for us to do a comic with voices and then hit a break and uh, do another comic, but you will find out why <laughs> when we come back.
Hey, welcome back. We are going to go right into Crisis on Infinite Earths number five, Worlds in Limbo. We start off at the Anti-Monitor's lair. He regards the consumption of Earth 1 and Earth 2 suspiciously. Uh, the worlds are gone, but he has gained no more power. Mm-hmm. Hmm, the Psychopirate whines. <laughs> he was promised a world he can control emotionally. Anti-Monitor tells Psychopirate to zip it. Yeah. His plans are coming together, and there's three more universes to consume. On the satellite, Harbinger is turned back into Lila, and she is no longer being mind-controlled. And boy, howdy, does she feel guilty. Oh, yeah, she feels pretty bad. But then a video of the monitor pops up on a monitor. Hey! Hey! (laughs) He tells Lila that he timed her assassination to the moment that he activated his giant tuning forks. Those are the yellow towers. And his energy was released into them, or something happened. But the point is, he created a netherverse where Earth-1 and Earth-2 were transported. But in his haste, they were also transposed and are now attempting to occupy the same space. And when they do, both worlds will destroy each other. Alexander, it's a well-thought-out plan. And exactly. Well, you know, it, this, this is really a, haste, yeah. a plan by inches, too. You know, it's like, <laughs> this will this buy me ten minutes, you know. Um, Alexander Luther shows up and tells Lila that the Monitor loved her, and this was all destined to happen. He's now, like, 22, 23 years old. He keeps getting older. He further says that the Monitor told him how to save some remaining worlds, but first... A proper burial, which is to shoot the corpse out into space, naturally. That's all you can do. Sure. At the uh, bad guy's place, evil guy tells Psycho Pirate that the last three worlds will be his to fool around with. But for now, he can tease the Flash, who's sort of just jittering around in the darkness. Uh, Psycho Pirate projects fear into the Flash, and the Flash cowers. Mm-hmm. On Earth, whichever one, Lana Lang Lang is reporting for WGBS-TV News. And there might just be a little bit to report today. It's a big news day today. It is, it is. Uh, Times are converging so that a T-Rex stomps around a medieval village next to a futuristic structure where a biplane... <laughs> flies next to a spaceship. I, I mean, it's just like George Perez must have had a blast just conceiving oh, the scene. I was like, yeah. oh my god. <laughs> Incidentally, uh, and for completeness' sake here, Lana Lang is Clark Kent's childhood friend who first appeared in Superboy number ten, September October nineteen fifty, by Bill Finger and John Sakella. Now, people of all eras are astonished. Uh, hey, including Sinestro's there, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sinestro first appeared in Green Lantern number 7, August 1961, cover by John Brune and Gil Kane. He was hanging around on his home planet, Korrigar, when a spaceship containing a Green Lantern crashed nearby. He went over, and the Green Lantern chucked Sinestro his ring so he could fight off his pursuers. Sinestro dispatched them, and then when the Green Lantern asked for his ring back so he can tend to his wounds, Sinestro decides he's going to keep the ring and let the Green Lantern die. Uh, I know his origin has been retconned into something way more complex since, but I've kind of always preferred this this beginning because he's like instantly evil, you know what I mean? Right from the start, yeah. Yeah, in the modern one, he's more, he becomes evil over time, or it sort of implies that here he's... He's a jerk right away. Yeah, he was more um, of a control freak afterwards, it seemed. Exactly. He's more of a order yeah. through being, you know, being a despot or whatever. But yeah. uh, I think, I'm not positive. I think behind Sergeant Rock in that same panel, you see a sliver of Arax, Son of Thunder. Okay. Uh, just in case it is, we can talk, so you can say that he first appeared in The Warlord, number 48, August 1981, by Roy Thomas and Ernie Cologne. He was born to Native Americans, but raised by Vikings, so he kicks butt real well. Mm-hmm. 
And then there's a double page spread aboard a monitor satellite where Harbinger, back in her, you know, her superhero duds and floating around, Alexander Luther Jr. and Pariah have assembled every freaking hero still active in the DCU. Wow. And it's a lot, folks. <laughs> now, only the ones we haven't named yet. We've got the All-Star Squadron slash Justice Society of America from All-American National Comics here. Uh, Amazing Men first appeared in All-Star All Squadron number 23, July 1983, by Roy Thomas and Jerry Ordway. As Will Everett, who was a promising young African-American Olympian who had competed in the 1936 Summer Olympics in Berlin, but his post-Olympic career devolved into a janitorial profession at a laboratory owned by Dr. Terry Curtis. There, an explosion left him with the power to adopt the properties of anything he touched. There's Adam, and this would be the original Adam, Al Pratt, who debuted in All-American Comics number 19, October 1940, by Ben Flinton and Bill O'Connor. He was a diminutive college student who packed a wallop. Dr. Fate. Kent Nelson first appeared in War Fun Comics number 55, May 1940, by Gardner Fox and Howard Sherman. Uh, father and son archaeologist duo Sven and Kent open a tomb containing, containing Nabu the Wise. Upon doing so, a gas is released that kills Sven. Taking pity on the now fatherless Kent, Nabu teaches him magic for 20 years and gives him a helmet and cloak. And The Flash. Now, this is, again, the original Flash, Jay Garrick, who first appeared in Flash Comics number 1, January 1940, by Gardner Fox and Harry Lampert. Uh, college student Garrick knocks over some beakers of hard water in the science lab one evening and is overcome by their fumes. This gives him the power of super speed, because why not? Sure. Green Lantern. Again, this is the Golden Age versions. Alan Scott, who first appeared in All-American Comics number 16, July 1940, by Bill Finger and Martin Nodell. Alan finds a railroad lantern with a storied past that gives him magic powers that don't work against wood. And these powers... They be green. Mm hmm. Uh, Hawkman and Hawkgirl. Both of these characters debuted in Flash Comics number one, January 1940 cover, by Gardner Fox, Dennis Neville, and Sheldon Moldoff. Uh, Carter Hall has a dream that he's an ancient Egyptian prince, Khufu, who has a lover named Shira. The next day, Carter meets a woman named Shira who looks exactly like the woman in his dream. <laughs> and that's a good enough reason for them to dress up as hawks and fight crime with ancient weapons. They fly around using a mysterious nth metal that's in their belts. Mm -hmm. Our man. Now, our man, our man, uh, showed up for the first time in Adventure Comics number 48, uh, March 1940 cover by Ken Fitch and Bernard Bailey. Uh, biochemist Rex Tyler lands upon the formula for Miraclo, a miraculous vitamin that gives someone superpowers for an hour. And our man uses this to fight crime. Uh, there's the Huntress. Now, there was a Golden Age Huntress, and this ain't her. <laughs> uh, this Huntress first appeared in All-Star Comics number 69 and DC Superstars number 17, December 1977. Cover dates, they both came out on the same day, and they were handled by the same creative team of Paul Levitz and Joe Staten. The latter comic featured Huntress's origin, which is that Helena Wayne is the daughter of Bruce Wayne, a.k.a. Batman, and Selina Kyle, a.k.a. Catwoman, who are married on Earth 2. Trained by both parents, so you can just picture their ability, the abilities of Batman plus Catwoman. 
Sure. Johnny Thunder. And this is Johnny... the one you're thinking of, by the way. <laughs> yes, this is the Johnny, unfortunately. <laughs> or fortunate, who knows? <laughs> now, Johnny first appeared in Flash Comics number one, January 1940 cover by John Wentworth and Stan Ashmeyer. John L. Thunder, hmm, <laughs> he's the seventh son of a seventh son, born at 7 a.m. on Saturday, July 7th, the seventh day of the week, the seventh day of the month, the seventh month of 1917. As an infant, he's given possession of a genie-like thunderbolt, who will appear to help Johnny if he recites the special phrase, Say You. It's spelled C-E-I-U. You'd think it might be C-U, but it's Say You. Say You somehow. Yeah, I wonder if Lionel Richie uh, was uh, (laughs) a... He, Johnny, he, he was plagued by Thunderbolt through that whole recording. It's like, oh, man. <laughs> Say it together. Um, now, Johnny is unaware of Thunderbolt's phrase that pays, so he says it unwillingly, yeah. unwittingly. Sometimes in hilarious ways. Liberty mm-hmm. Bell, Libby Lawrence, first appeared in Boy Commandos Number 1, Winter 1942, by Don Cameron and Chuck Winter. When the Liberty Bell in Philadelphia is rung, she gains super and patriotic powers. Hmm, Power Girl, Kara Karen Starr, first appeared in All-Star Comics number 58, January-February 1976, by Jerry Conway and Joe Orlando, but the character is based on Supergirl, uh, created by Otto Binder and Al Plastino, and her origin will get weird, but we don't have to worry about that. You know, she sort of slipped in to take Supergirl's place sometimes. Uh, This one is a little weird, though. This is Robin. (laughs) Now, this is the Robin of Earth 2. An adult who first appeared in Justice League of America number 55 in 1967 by Gardner Fox and Mike Sikowski. But this character really is based on the original Robin from 1940, created by Bob Kane with Bill Finger. His origin is the same as the Robin of Earth-1. He was an acrobat who saw his parents die on the trapeze, so Bruce Wayne took him in as a ward. Except Robin of Earth-2 is from the Golden Age, while whatever kid's running around as Robin in the moment clearly is not. That's where it's different. And this Robin has an even stupider costume than the original Robin. He has, like, a wrestling helmet or something. It's, like, ridiculous. It's wild. Now we have Sargon. Sargon the Sorcerer first appeared in All-American Comics number 26, May 1941 cover date, by John B. Wentworth and Howard Purcell. Uh, stage magician John Sargent is in possession of a magic ruby that allows him to perform, quote-unquote, real magic. And then the Spectre. That's our green and white ghost first appeared in More Fun Comics number 52, February 1940 cover by Jerry Siegel and Bernard Bailey. Hard-boiled cop Jim Corrigan is murdered by thugs who stuff him into a barrel filled with cement and then throw it into a body of water. Overkill. His spirit, I know. (laughs) His spirit is refused entry into the afterlife, however, and he's sent back to the earth by an entity referred to only as the voice to eliminate evil. And his power set, especially back in the golden age, was essentially whatever he felt like doing at the moment. Yeah. (laughs) Amazing things that blow your mind. We've got Tarantula. Uh, the version known as John Law debuted in Star Spangled Comics number one. This is October 1941 cover date. The character is created by uh, Mort Weisinger. Uh, throwback to the mystery men of the pulps, he can climb things with suction cups and uses a gun that fires webbing. Despite the fact that tarantulas don't spin webs. Very close <laughs> enough. Uh, Wildcat, this is Ted Grant, first appeared in Sensation Comics number one, January 1942, by Bill Finger and Irwin Hazen. A world class boxer who was magically given nine lives, so he dressed up in a cat suit and fought crime naturally. That's what I would do. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've got Green Arrow. 
the Emerald Archer first showed up in More Fun Comics number 73. This is November 1941 by Mort Weisinger and George Papp. Wealthy playboy Oliver Queen is motivated by a love of Robin Hood to dress up in a green tunic and shoot trick arrows at criminals. Later, he would be more motivated by copying Batman. That's right. Yeah, the arrow car, the arrow cave, cave a whole bunch yep. of stuff. But yeah, this isn't the... Uh, we'll, we'll get to the more modern green arrow in a moment. Sure. Now we got the batch of Freedom Fighters. These are the characters that were picked up from quality comics the, from the Golden Age. There's Black Condor, named Richard Gray Jr. He first appeared in More Fun Comics number 73, November 1941, cover by Will Eisner, under the pseudonym Kenneth Lewis, and Lou Fine. As an infant traveling with his parents on an archaeological expedition through Outer Mongolia, Richard Gray Jr. is rescued from bandits by a condor, who then raised him as her own. He learned to fly, as the origin story stated, by studying the movement of wings, the body motions, air currents, balance, and levitation of his avian siblings. Stands to reason. Wow. Uh, <laughs> we've got Doll Man. Uh, this little fella debuted in Feature Comics number 27, December 1939, by Will Eisner. He's the world's mightiest might. He's a research chemist, Daryl Dane, who invents a formula that enables him to shrink to the height of six inches while retaining his full the, the full strength of his normal size. Sort of like a couple other people we know. A lot uh, of other people. Yeah, we know. <laughs> there's a Human Bomb. He first appeared in Police Comics Number One, August 1941, created by Paul Gustavson. Roy Lincoln was a scientist working with his father on a special explosive chemical called 27-QRX when Nazi spies invaded his lab and killed his father. Roy ingested the chemical to prevent it from falling into their hands and as a result, gained the ability to cause explosions in any object he came into contact with. The only way to control it was to always wear a special asbestos suit, which was retconned by this time into fibro-wax. Hmm. We got the Phantom Lady, and it's a, it's a pretty complicated one here. Bit, we yeah. got, uh, yeah. uh, the, the character known as Sandra Knight debuted in Police Comics Number 1, that's at August 1941 cover date, by the Eisner Iger Studio, penciling attributed to Arthur Petty. All we know about Sandra is that she is the beautiful debutante daughter of U.S. Senator Henry Knight. When Quality stopped publishing Phantom Lady, what was then the Iger studio thought they owned the character, and they assigned it to uh, Fox Features. So then Fox debuted Phantom Lady in Phantom Lady number 13, August 1947. It took over the numbering of a comic called What a Life. Uh, the character was redesigned by good girl artist Matt Baker, who was a great artist for that kind of thing, mm. who really vamped her up and exposed considerably more cleavage. When Fox folded, its assets were eventually absorbed by Charlton, who didn't make any new stories at all featuring the character. And then in 1956, DC Comics obtained the rights to the quality comics characters, which they believed included Phantom Lady. And so, they introduced her 17 years later in Justice League of America number 107, October 1973, cover date, in Crisis on Earth X by Len Wein and Dick Dillon. DC Comics would give her a little bit of an origin, including that she had gotten her signature weapon, a black light ray projector, from a family friend, Professor Davis. Now, though they'd acquired Phantom Lady from Quality Comics, she wears a ver the version of Mac Baker's costume from Fox Features. So things got confused in there somewhere. Uh, DC also moved Sandra from Washington, D.C. to Opal City to join the lineage of Ted Knight, a Ted Knight, a.k.a. Starman. 
Uh, though the character's copyright was sort of in question, or there's things that can be questioned about it, I think there was no one to contest it, and at this point, I'd say DC likely holds whatever copyrights would apply to the name Phantom Lady. Sure. But I'm not, you know, I'm not, not acting as their lawyer in any capacity. <laughs> We've got Ray ha- Lanford Happy Terrell first appeared in Smash Comics number 14, September 1940, by Lou Fine. Uh, very likely through the Eisner Iger studio. I think so, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Happy Terrell was uh, exposed to sunlight and lightning simultaneously while hot air ballooning. And now he can absorb and project light and also fly, of course. Of course. And then there's Uncle Sam. Uh, for most people, Uncle Sam is a personification of the United States, specifically the U.S. government. It's unknown where he first appeared, really, but it's thought he was created during the War of, 19, of 1812 to encourage patriotism. The comic book version, which we're more concerned with, uh, this resembles the original lanky figure of Uncle Sam in every way, uh, with, complete with the stars and stripes, uh, tuxedo and everything, first appeared in National Comics number 1, July 1940 cover by Will Eisner. He's a mystical being who was originally the spirit of a slain patriotic soldier from the American Revolutionary War and who now appears in the world whenever his country needs him. Mm. Let's jump over to Infinity, Inc. We got Brainwave Jr. Uh, The first Brainwave was Henry King, a supervillain who used his psionic powers to battle the Justice Society of America. And he first appeared in All-Star Comics number 15. This is February, March 1943. Hank King Jr. is the son of Hank King Sr., as you might imagine. Mm -hmm. And Mary Pemberton and Hank Jr. receive psionic power from their father before he expires. Uh, Hank Jr. decides to bring Anna back to the family and the name Brainwave and so he joins up with heroes and debuts in All-Star Squadron number 24, cover dated August 1983 by Roy Thomas and Jerry Ordway Fury first appeared in Wonder Woman number 300, February 1983 by Roy Thomas, Dan Thomas and Ross Andrew Fury is Hippolyta Lyta Trevor, the daughter of the Golden Age Wonder Woman and Steve Trevor and she's got Wonder Woman powers we got Jade. Jenny Lynn Hayden first appeared in All-Star Squadron number 25, September 1983, cover date by Roy Thomas and Jerry Ordway. She's the daughter of Alan Scott, the Golden Age Green Lantern, and Rose Canton, who's Thorn, and is also the twin of hero Obsidian. Uh, Jade was adopted by a couple living in the suburbs of Milwaukee and learned of her brother when she was in her late teens. Denied by the Justice Society, they decide to form Infinity, Inc. Uh, she has similar powers to her father, Alan Scott, but doesn't need a ring or a lantern to make them work. She's got the, the star heart, I think it is. Right, and you know, basically just blasts green fire whenever she <laughs> yes. feels like it. Northwind, he first appeared in that same issue of All-Star Squadron, number 25, but that seemed to debut a lot of these folks. Yep. Uh, Nordra Cantrell is the offspring of Fe- Fred Cantrell, a human colleague of Carter Hall's, and Osoro, a Faitherian woman. Faitherians are descendants of an ancient Egyptian sect that migrated to Greenland. And this would be the same Egyptians from whence Carter Hall got his nth medal. Again, this is Golden Age stuff, uh, when we talked about Hawkman and Hawk woman earlier, hawk girl. Norda was born with wings and has lots of bird-like powers that help him track people and navigate flying. 
We got Nuclon, Albert Rothstein, first appeared in the very same issue of All-Star Squadron that debuted the rest of the founding members of Infinity, mm -hmm. Inc. Uh, grandson of reluctant supervillain Cyclotron, Nuclon has the powers of super strength, and he has control over his molecular structure, allowing him to alter the size and density of his body. He's also the godson of Golden Age Adam Al Pratt, and wears a mohawk to uh, mimic <laughs> his costume. That's right. Uh, he would have a lot of changes after Crisis, but that's not for us to worry about yes. here. <laughs> Silver Scarab, this is Hector Hall, the son of Carter Hall and Shira Hall, also debuted in that same All-Star Squadron number 25 that we keep mentioning. Uh, when Hector was born during an archaeological dig near Cairo, he was born without a soul, destined to be a vessel for the Silver Scarab, an agent, an agent of vengeance called forth by Hath Set, the ancient Egyptian pharaoh that hates the halls. While enrolled at UCLA and feeling neglected by his crime-fighting parents, Hector constructed a suit out of nth metal, adding some solar improvements. A lot more stuff would happen to Hector post-crisis, but we're not talking about that here. No, because it gets wacky. Yep. Uh, <laughs> we got the Star-Spangled Kid, Sylvester Pemberton, debuted in Action Comics number 40, way back September 1941 cover date by Jerry Siegel and Hal Sherman. Uh, he was a kid who wore a Star-Spangled outfit to fight Nazis and fifth columnists during World War II. Uh, Sylvester was unique in that he was a kid superhero who operated with an adult sidekick who was Stripesy, a.k.a. Pat Dugan And we will meet him more in another issue So I didn't, mm -hmm. we didn't get into that Now let's head into Justice League of America And Justice League Detroit Which had just recently debuted I think When this series was happening right The Detroit it was, team. Yeah it was early on yeah Yeah. Uh, we'll start with Aquaman This is Arthur Curry First showed himself in More Fun Comics Number 73 November 1941 By Mort Weisinger and Paul Norris Arthur is the son of Tom Curry, a New England lighthouse keeper, and Atlanta, the wa a water-breathing outcast from the underwater city of Atlantis. So therefore, he can breathe underwater and talk to fish. Mm-hmm. We got the Atom, another Atom. This is uh, this is the Silver Age Atom, Ray Palmer, who first appeared in Showcase number 34, October 1961, by Gardner Fox and Gil Kane, with a big assist from Julius Schwartz. Uh, Palmer is a physicist and professor at Ivy University in the fictional city of Ivytown, specializing in matter compression as a means to fight overpopulation, famine, and other world problems. Using a mass of white dwarf star matter he finds after it lands on Earth, Palmer fashions a lens that enables him to shrink any object, including himself, to any degree he wishes. Black Canary, and we said this have wrinkles, <laughs> this one is interesting. Uh, she first appeared in Flash Comics number 86, that was August 1947, by Robert Kaniger and Carmine Infantino. In the Golden Age, Dinah Drake was a black-haired florist in love with Larry Lance, a Gotham City Police Department detective. So she wore a blonde wig and fought crime to further his cause. Now she would marry Larry Lance, and they'd still be married when the character was resurrected for a Silver Age dust-off in one of the, those, we mentioned that JLA, JSA uh, mm -hmm. crossover. Uh, it was actually from the 80s or the late 70s, I believe. Uh, in 1969, Larry is killed by a supervillain named... Oh, no, it was, must have been 69. In 1969, Larry is killed by a supervillain named Aquarius, so Dinah moves to Earth-1 and starts dating Green Arrow. It is here that she develops her canary cry, a sonic shriek that can really wreck stuff. And again, 
Chris did a better job explaining that earlier. So <laughs> well, they they split her into two. So we, yeah. uh, but that was elsewhere. Uh, we got elongated man Ralph Dibney, who first appeared in the Flash number one hundred twelve, May twelfth, nineteen sixty, by John Broom and Carmine Infantino. As a kid, Ralph apes contortionists and learns that they all drink a soda called Gingold. Are we saying Gingold or Gingold or? I don't. I I would I would say Gingold in my mind. That's what I, I say too. Yeah. Okay, we'll call it Gingold, and this soda makes them flexible. He develops a super-concentrated extract of the rare Gingo fruit of the Yucatan, and this makes him stretchy. He also drinks Gingold in a pinch. Uh, Ralph Dibney is unique in that he doesn't have a secret identity, and he's married to a non-powered person named Sue. Yeah. Uh, Green Arrow. This is the one we, we talked about before. You know, the character debuted in More Fun Comics 73 from 1941, as discussed previously, but his costume was remade and his whole look changed in The Brave and the Bold, number 85. That was August, September 1969 by Dennis O'Neill and Neil Adams. So it's, it's again, this is that Golden Age, Silver Age thing, but this <laughs> version, he has lost his fortune and now he's a champion of the downtrodden and has very liberal values. I was just reading uh, Justice League Cry for Justice where uh, he and Hal are talking. He's like, hey, you remember when I lost my fortune and became liberal? Yep, there it is. (laughs) (laughs) What human speaks that way? (laughs) Okay, Gypsy. Cynthia, Cindy Reynolds, first appeared in Justice League of America Annual 2, October 1984, by Jerry Conway and Chuck Patton. She comes from an abusive, broken home, which she left at age 14 once her power to cast illusions began to manifest. And uh, she doesn't like to wear shoes. Nope, that I can understand that. Hawkman, the Silver <laughs> Age version, debuted in The Brave and the Bold, number 34, February to March 1961, cover by Gardner Fox and Joe Kubert, with an assist by Julius Schwartz. Thanagarian space cop Katar Hall follows a criminal to Earth and finding he likes it there stays. He assumes the identity of Carter Hall. The police uniform on planet Thanagar is a pair of wings and a hawk helmet, naturally. And helpfully. Yeah. Uh, we've got a hawk woman. Showed up in that same issue of The Brave and the Bold. That's number 34. Uh, Shayara Hall is Katar Hall's wife and a Thanagarian police officer herself. But they still like to use ancient weapons. That's sort of the gimmick for whatever reason. Yeah. A Martian Manhunter. The big green guy first appeared as a backup in Detective Comics number 225, the November 1955 cover date, by Joseph Samachun and Joe Serta. John Johns, spelled J-apostrophe-O-N-N, J-apostrophe-O-N-Z-Z, was beamed to Earth by Dr. Saul Ertl, who dies as soon as John shows up, trapping him. He adopts the identity of hard-boiled detective John Jones and mingles with humanity. When he joins the Justice League in the 1960s, the idea that he's the last living Martian comes into play. His power set is pretty much everything Superman can do, plus phase through solid objects and shapeshift, so like way more powerful than Superman. <laughs> Next up is Steel, and it's it's not that Steel. No. Uh, this one is Hank Haywood III, the second in, in the line of uh, Steels, who first appeared in Justice League of America Annual Number 2, October 1984, by Jerry Conway and Chuck Patton. Uh, Conway actually wrote the first Haywood family hero named Commander Steel, who debuted in Steel the Indestructible Man Number 1. This was March 1978, covered by, penciled by Don Heck. 
This series ran five issues uh, and took place in 1939. Uh, Commander Steele gives his grandson, Hank III, some, the same cybernetic enhancements that warrant his moniker, much to his grandson's chagrin. Yeah, but he, he takes it on and does the best he can. Mm-hmm. Vibe first appeared in that same issue of Justice League of America Annual Number 2 by Conway and Patton. Cisco Ramon gave up his position as the leader of a street gang to join Justice League Detroit, where he could use his metahuman ability to emit shockwaves to fight crime. He's also really good at breakdancing. Mm-hmm. Have linoleum will travel. Uh, Zatanna. Zatanna Zatara first appeared in Hawkman number 4, October-November 1964, by Gardner Fox and Murphy Anderson, again with an assist by Julia Schwartz. Uh, she's the daughter of Golden Age comic book magician Giovanni Zatara. And he first appeared in Action Comics number one, Whoa. June 1938, way back. Uh, Zatanna wields powerful magic by speaking commands backwards, and she also wears a snappy pair of fishnet stockings. Now we'll go on to some Legion of Superheroes members that we haven't yet mentioned, and here are <laughs> more of them. A fellow named Block, who's kind of a pseudo thing from the Fantastic Four, and he first appeared in Superboy in the Legion of Superheroes number 253. July 1979 cover date by Jerry Conway and Joe Staten. Block, possibly the last of a silicon-based species native to the planet Dryad, was manipulated into thinking that the Legion was seeking to destroy his homeworld, when in fact the Legionnaires were working to save it. When he found out he was wrong, he joined up with the Legion. He can absorb energy attacks, he might be invulnerable, I'm not sure, it's unclear in the issues leading into crisis. We got Bouncing Boy. Chuck Tane first appeared in Action Comics number 276 uh, back in May 1961 by Jerry Siegel and Jim Mooney. Uh, Chuck received his ability to inflate and bounce when he accidentally drank a super plastic formula that he thought was soda pop. Oops, there's Cosmic Boy. He showed up in the very first Legion of Superheroes appearance for uh, in Adventure Comics number 247. That was April 1958 by Otto Binder and Al Plastino. His real name is Rock Crin, and he's a founding member of the Legion of Superheroes. He has the power to control magnetic fields and, you know, more or less whatever Magneto can do. Mm-hmm. A duo damsel, originally Triplicate Girl, she first appeared in Action Comics number 276. It's May 1961 by Siegel and Mooney. Luorno Durgo was a native of the planet Karg who could split into three identical bodies, as could all Kargites, due to the planet Karg having three sons. Sure. And, and, why not? In Adventure Comics number 340 from January 1966, Brainiac 5's robot Computo goes berserk and kills one of Luorno's copies, remaking her into Duo Damsel. Yep, and later she loses that one too, but that's later. She, she because she becomes you know damsel or something like that. Uh, Invisible Kid as Jacques Focar first appeared in Legion of Superheroes Annual Number One, 1982, by Paul Levitz and Keith Giffen, based on the original character by Siegel and Mooney. Uh, the first Invisible Kid was Lyle Norg, an early member of the Legion who gained his powers from a chemical serum he invented, and he first appeared in Action Comics Number Two Sixty Seven. August 1960 cover. Jacques Focar, a teenage native of Earth uh, from what was once the Francophone African nation of Cote d'Ivory, which would be the Ivory Coast, took his dying younger sister Danielle to Brainiac 5 as a last resort. And Brainiac 5 decided to utilize a piece of circuitry from the dismantled machine Computo. 
Computo immediately possesses Danielle and takes over future Metropolis, so Jacques takes Lyle Norg's serum to become the Invisible Kid. And his power is he can turn invisible. Oh, oh okay. I was waiting for that. <laughs> Lightning Lad, Goth Rans, debuted in Adventure Comics 247, along with the other, you know, the other two initial Legionnaires here. Mm. Uh, he is the twin brother of fellow Legionnaire Lightning Lass and has the same lightning chuck and powers. Saturn Girl, real name Imra Ardeen, first appeared in that same inaugural story, uh, Adventure Comics 247. She originally joined the science police as a powerful telepath, then decided to form the Legion of Superheroes because the uniform is better. <laughs> I, made, I made that up, but that's more like, that's, that's the quick version. It is a nicer uniform, though. It is. <laughs> and you know that stupid patch on your shoulder. Uh, Shadowless, Tasmia Malor greeted the world in Adventure Comics number 365 from February 1968 by Jim Shooter and Kurt Swan. Like all Talakians native to Talak 8, she has dark blue skin and pointed ears, and she can project shadows. Shrinking Violet, also known as Salu Digby, first showed up in Action Comics number 276, May 1961. By Siegel and Mooney. She comes from the planet Imsk and has the power to shrink to tiny size, as do all Imsk natives. We got Starboy. Tom Kalor debuted in Adventure Comics 282 from March 1961 by Otto Bender and George Papp. Tom was born to astronomer parents or an observ- on an observation satellite orbiting the planet Xanthu with the ability to temporarily increase the mass of an object up to the mass of a star. And his story gets crazy, too. Gets real crazy. Uh, Sunboy, Dirk Morgna, came to comics in that same Action Comics number 276 that debuted several others that we've already mentioned. Dirk's father owns a nuclear power plant where Dr. Zaxton Regulus throws Dirk into an atomic reactor. Due to Dirk's one-in-a-million genetic structure, the radiation gives him the power to generate heat and light. And he's another one whose story gets weird. Uh, we got Timber Wolf. Bryn Londo first appeared in Adventure Comics 327, December 1964, by Edmund Hamilton and John Forte. Bryn Londo gained his superpowers from experiments conducted on the fictional element Zunium by his father, Dr. Marlondo. He's superhumanly fast and agile, sort of like Wolverine before Wolverine was a thing. Mm-hmm. Ultra Boy. Real name Joe Na debuted in Superboy number 98, July 1962 cover by Jerry Siegel and Kurt Swan. Hailing from the planet Rimbor, Ultra Boy can channel some secret energy to manifest fantastic superpowers, but only one power at a time. It's good when he has the flight ring on, he can Exactly. So that's the default, <laughs> yeah. Otherwise he'd fall out of the sky. Yep. And now, the rest. Sort of an assorted mix, yeah, of people. Yes. And we're starting with a with a pip. We got Airwave. <laughs> the original yep. Airwave, Larry Jordan, debuted in Detective Comics number 60, way back in February 1942, written by either Murray Boltonoff or Mort Weisinger, and drawn by Lee Harris. He made a helmet that could pick up on police band uh, radio broadcasts and fashioned rocket-powered roller skates to chase down crooks faster. Later, his son, Harold Hal Jordan, would take up the radio-receiving mantle, confusing Green Lantern fans for years, decades even. Mm-hmm. He was born on... Uh, the, the son was born on Earth-1, but his parents were from Earth-2, and somehow he's still our Hal Jordan's cousin. Cousin, yeah. I, I, yeah. <laughs> 
Now, Hal can also ride radio waves and fly at superhuman speeds, making those roller skates kind of just added weight. Yeah, I think actually by this time he got rid of them, but uh, Let's hope. what a weird character. Hmm? Amethyst, Princess of Gemworld, debuted in a bonus book included in Legion of Superheroes number 298. That was April 1983 cover by Dan Mishkin, Gary Cohn, and Early Cologne. Teenager girl Amy Winston finds out she's actually the princess of a mystical gem world under threat by the evil Dark Opal. And she decides she likes that better than her regular life and kind of hangs out there more. We got Aqua Girl. Now, there are actually a couple of different Aqua Girls before she became a recurring character, but the one we're going to talk about and the one we care about is Tula, who first appeared in Aquaman number 33. This is May, June 1967, by Bob Haney and Nick Cardi. Orphan Tula, orphaned, not orphan, orphaned Tula is raised by Atlantean royalty and becomes the Princess of Poseidonus. She never leaves the palace until she turns 15 and meets the following fella. Yeah, Aqualad. He first appeared in Adventure Comics number 269, February 1960, by Robert Bernstein and Ramona Fraden. Queen Bera of Poseidonus gives birth to a baby boy named Garth that has purple eyes. Ashamed of his genetic inferiority, they leave him to die far away from Atlantis. <laughs> Aquaman finds and rescues him, and considering they have the same exact powers, Garth becomes his sidekick. And he's also a founding member of the Teen Titans. Next up is Black Hawk Kid. Oh, Black Orchid. Uh, first, <laughs> first appeared in Adventure Comics number 428, July 1973, by Sheldon Mayer and Tony Di uh, While Adventure Comics 428 proclaimed on its cover that it was an origin issue, almost no background on the character was given. Not even her name. Uh, the character was known for her lack of an origin, and writers teased the audience with several possible origin stories, all refuted. Uh, she can fly, has super strength, and is invulnerable, but her real gimmick is that she's a master of disguise. Yeah, like she sometimes she'd spend the entire story as a maid or something, someone in the background, mm. and then whip off the mask at the end and, I guess, punch someone in the face. <laughs> uh, Blue Devil, Dan Cassidy, his real name, he first hit the scene in Fury of Firestorm number 24, June 1984, by Dan Mishkin, Gary Cohn, and Paris Collins. Dan is a stuntman who creates a special suit full of gadgets to play a character named Blue Devil in a movie titled Blue Devil. When two of his co-stars accidentally free a demon named Nebiros, Dan gets grafted to the suit permanently and fights crime as well as monsters. Why not? And then that was in a uh, bon another bonus book. Uh, yeah. First when he first debuted in that, yeah, it's like a yep. pullout or whatever. We got the Bawana Beast. Mike Maxwell debuted in Showcase 66, January 1967, by Bob Haney and Mike Sikowski. Refusing his father's millions, Mike goes on safari and gets stranded on Mount Kilimanjaro. After drinking some filtered rainwater, he beats up a red mutant ape who brings Mike a helmet that allows him to control all animals. That happened to me last week. Mm, uh, saying. That's right, Cap <laughs> Captain Comet. Uh, this is Adam Blake. First appeared in Strange Adventures number nine, June 1951, by Julius Schwartz, John Broom, and Carmine Infantino. This is the first man of the future. He's a mutant metahuman born a hundred thousand years before his time, in 1931, to a farming couple from the American Midwest. His metagene was triggered by a comet passing overhead at birth. 
He's kind of interesting. He has a kind of unique position in DC Comics history because he's a superhero created right between the Golden Age and the Silver Age, like right on that cusp. Uh, his early stories fall into a no-man's land. Some people refer to him as the Atomic Age. Hmm. We got Chlorophyll Kid. Uh, the kid first appeared in Adventure Comics 306, March 1963, by Edmund Hamilton and John Forte. This is another uh, Legionnaire. Uh, born Ral Benham on planet Mardu, he accidentally fell into a tank of hydroponic serum, which gave him the power to stimulate plant growth. Uh, along with uh, several other failed applicants to the Legion of Superheroes, he helped form the Legion of Substitute Heroes. That's right. That's right, which I love. So we'll, we'll <laughs> talk about that some other month. Uh, Cinnamon. This is Kate Menzer stepped into the picture in Weird Western Tales number 48, September through October 1978, cover date by Roger McKenzie and Jack Abel. Orphaned when her sheriff father is murdered, Kate teaches herself to be an expert gunslinger, and upon aging out of the orphanage, becomes a bounty hunter to find her father's killers. She also uses her dad's sheriff badge as a throwing star, which is awesome. I love, you know, mm -hmm. it's a great yep. thing. You only get one shot, though. Right. <laughs> We got The Creeper. Jack Ryder crept into the world in Showcase 73, April 1968, by Steve Ditko. Outspoken former TV host Jack Ryder is injected with a serum that gives him invulnerability and hyper-agility. And so he wears a crazy green, yellow, and red costume to find criminals and laugh maniacally at them. Yeah, it's even a little bit more like that serum or has a mechanical has a, component. Has an effect, yeah. Right, and he can change it to the costume, but it, it's a lot more I wanted to get into. Dead Man, this is Boston Brand, showed up in Strange Adventures number 205, October 1967, cover by Arnold Drake and Carmine Infantino. Trapeze artist Brand is murdered mid-performance, and then Hindu god Ramakushna gives his ghost the power to possess any living person. Dolphin swam into the DC Universe in Showcase 79, December 1968, by J. Scott Pike. Abducted as a young girl by aliens that are creating an aquatic race of humans, she escapes their lab and lives in the ocean. She's later picked up by a fishing vessel and learns the language of man. And then Dove. Don Hall arrived with his brother Hank in Showcase number 75, this is June 1968, by Steve Ditko and Steve Skeets. Sons of Judge Irwin Hall, Hank and Don trail some criminals back to their hideout to eavesdrop. There, the Lord of Chaos named Char and the Lord of Order named Terataya give them the power to become Hawk and Dove and be politically opposed forever. Not sure well, we don't see Hawk in this issue. Maybe he's in the bathroom, but we do see him later. We got Firehair. Lynn Cabot first appeared in Rangers number 21, February 1945, by John Starr, in quotes, and Lee Elias. <laughs> I don't uh, know why it's in quotes, but there it is. <laughs> there it is. Injured during an attack on her father's wagon, which leaves him dead, Lynn is taken back to the Dakota Indian, where she's nursed back to health. Uh, she has amnesia, however, so they train her how to be the roughest, toughest white woman in the West, to the point where she literally wrestles Panthers and wins. Wow. Firehawk. This is Lorraine Riley came into being in Firestorm Number 1, June 1982, cover date by Jerry Conway and Pat Broderick. The daughter of a United States senator, Lorraine is kidnapped by Multiplex and subjected to the same nuclear accident that created Firestorm. This turned her into Firehawk, and now she can fire thermal blasts and stuff. Yeah, she was part of one of the Monitor's pre-crisis appearances. We got uh, Jim. Jim first appeared in Jim, Son of Saturn, number one, September 1984, by Greg Potter and Gene Colan. 
He's a member of White Saturnian Saturnian royalty who fled to Harlem in New York City because of a girl. Ain't that always the way? Yep. There's actually a lot more to this character's backstory, but uh, we don't want to spend more time telling it <laughs> than most people have, you know, than more people have actually read his series. Yeah, he, but, he was meant to be related to Martian Manhunter, but then, that happens eventually. Yeah, and later on it does JLA, happen, exactly. Yeah. But yeah, long story, but anyway, that's, yeah. that's who he is. <laughs> uh, Johnny Thunder, and this is, again, another different Johnny Thunder, not the Say You one. That's how many Johnny Thunders, like three or four running around the DCU. <laughs> this is Johnny with an I, first appeared in Johnny Thunder number one, February 1985, by Roy Thomas, Dan Thomas, and Dick Giordano. Johnny is a hard-boiled detective who retrieves a statue as part of a job and is inadvertently given the omnipotent power of the Thunderbolt. When the Thunderbolt's active, though, Johnny is asleep. Mm. A little different. Sure, Lori Lamaris here. Our mermaid gal first appeared in Superman number 129, May 1959, by Bill Finger and Wayne Boring. While attending Metropolis University, Clark met Lori, who was hiding her mermaid identity by posing as a wheelchair-using student with a blanket covering, you know, the fish part of her body. <laughs> uh, because she's telepathic for some reason, she knows that Clark is really Superman. They fall in love and date for a while, but because she's a mermaid, they must part ways. She comes back routinely during the Silver Age for some Superman loving, though, and uh, I, I'm sure they've been married about 45 times. Yeah, on the various Earths that we've, we've looked at. <laughs> now, Plastic Man. Uh, Plaz first appeared in Police Comics number 1, August 1941, by Jack Cole. Criminal Eel O'Brien is shot and doused with a strange acid at a chemical plant during a robbery. Nursed back to health by some eastern monk And finding he has the power to stretch his body into any shape He goes straight and uses his weird power to fight crime Where he got the goggles, though, we're not sure no. Polar Boy Breck Bannon showed up in Adventure Comics 306, March 1963, by Edmund Hamilton and John Forte. Breck grew up on the planet Thar, which is considered one of the hottest inhabited planets in the galaxy. Bannon's family lives in the hottest valley on the planet, where the inhabitants developed the power to create super cold, snow and ice, as a way to combat the persistent heat. And in case it wasn't clear, he is a member of the Legion of Superheroes. Yeah, it's kind of why he slipped out of that pack. Uh, Ragman, Rory Regan first appeared in Ragman No. 1, August-September 1976, by Robert Kaniger and Joe Kubert. Vietnam veteran Rory sees his father tortured to death by electricity moments before passing out in their store, which is named Rags and Tatters. So he dresses in a costume made of rags and goes after his father's murderers, as well as any other bad folks. Mm-hmm. Robin. The currently active Robin is Jason Todd, and he first appeared in Batman number 357 from March 1983 by Jerry Conway and Don Newton with an assist by Denny O'Neill. Uh, at this point, Jason's, Jason Todd's appearance and origin are pretty much the exact same as Dick Grayson's, and uh, since everything else happens after Crisis, we'll just leave it at just that. Just leave it there. Uh, Stripesy, who we mentioned before, this is Pat Dugan, first appeared in Action Comics number 40, September 1941, by Jerry Siegel and Hal Sherman. He's the adult sidekick to that star-spangled kid, and together they make an American flag, right? The star-spangled mm-hmm. and the Stripesies. Very clever. 
There it is. Uh, Swamp Thing. Now, this one is sort of complicated. Uh, the first Swamp Thing, named Alex Olsen, appeared in House of Secrets, number 92, July 1971, by Len Wein and Bernie Wrightson. The story takes place in, in the early 20th century and involves him being caught in an explosion set by his friend, jealous of Alex's wife. People liked it so much, Len and Bernie retooled the character, and he debuted in his own title, Swamp Thing Number 1. That was November 1972 cover. Now, he was a modern-day biochemist, Alec Holland, caught in an explosion while doing research in the Louisiana Bayou. He runs into the swamp and emerges the Swamp Thing. At this point in his history, Swamp Thing is being written by Alan Moore and is, an, is emerging as a plant god. Yeah, it really is happening at the same time as this series. Yep. Windfall, known as uh, it's Wendy Jones, first appearance was Batman and the Outsiders, April 1984, and created by Mike W. Barr and Jim Aparo. Member of the supervillain team, the Masters of Disaster, she would redeem herself and briefly join the Outsiders before returning to college. She's the sister to the villain New Wave. Hmm. The Black Hawk Squadron. Their first appearance was Military Comics Number no. 1, August 1941, from Quality Comics, created by Will Eisner and Chuck Quidara, or Quidera. Their first DC Comics issue was Black Hawk No. 108, January 1957. They were a group of pilots fighting the Nazis in World War II. We've got Andre. First appearance, Military Comics No. 2, September 1941, from Quality, created by Eisner and Quidera. A French pilot and leader of the French underground. He's also known as Iron Face and the Man in the Iron Mask. This is a, there was a period of time where they took on code names, so okay. uh, each of them got a, a weird code name. Uh, after displaying some talent for machinery, he was briefly known as Monsieur Machine. <laughs> That's a good name. Uh, Stanislaw first appearance was Black Hawk number one hundred eight, January nineteen fifty seven, created by Jack Schiff and Dick Dillon, Polish muscle man who served as a circus strongman though was also a brilliant student at the University of Warsaw with a particular talent for finances. Briefly known as the Golden Centurion after stealing a suit of armor from the Emperor. The Challenges of the Unknown. First appearance, Showcase number 6, February 1957, created by Dave Wood and Jack Kirby. There's a team of heroes. These are people who were held in high esteem by the public. Right. Uh, they were on their way to appear on a radio program so called Heroes, actually. They suffered a plane crash. The crash also included Ace Morgan, who isn't in this scene. Um, after surviving the crash, they decided they'd, that they'd been spared for a reason and probably should team up and challenge the unknown together. That's right. We're living on borrowed time, they said. Yep. Let's make the best of it. Uh, early on, they were offered a million dollars by uh, Mr. Morrill. Lion, to if they can find a way to open Pandora's box. Now, Pandora's box is an artifact in Greek mythology said to contain all the evils in the world. It was actually a jar, which upon opening, Pandora released all evil and left inside hope. Uh, all members were about to cover besides June Robbins first appeared in Showcase number 6. So let's jump right over to June Robbins. Her first appearance was Showcase number 7, April 1957 cover. <laughs> Inventor of the artificial intelligence Ultavac, which turned on them naturally. You mean Ultron? No, no, Ultavac. That's a different oh, one. Oh, okay. Yeah, right. Uh, Professor Haley. Walter Haley, master skin diver and oceanographer. Eventually, the skin diving elephants... Elephants, oh, lordy. <laughs> the skin diving elements were lessened for a stronger focus on the science. Red Ryan uh, is Matthew Ryan. He's a circus acrobat and daredevil. 
and Rocky Davis is Lester Davis, Olympic wrestling champion. Uh, he's eventually institutionalized after the team disbands. We got the Doom Patrol. First appearance, My Greatest Adventure, number 80, June 1963, created by Arnold Drake, Bob Haney, and Bruno Primiani. It's a team of outcast heroes banded together by the chief, Niles Calder, after they each suffered, we'll just say accidents. Right. Uh, <laughs> the original team included Robot Man, Elastigirl, Rita Farr, and Negative Man, Larry Trainer. Uh, the team would sacrifice themselves to save the small fishing community Codsville, Maine, population 14, in Doom Patrol number 121 from October 1968. And that's an issue that we discussed at pretty decent length in a very early Cosmic Treadmill, which we'll get around to re-uploading pretty quick. Yeah, we had a good time with that. But this team is actually the new team, which had debuted mm -hmm, the in the 70s. Right, it's like the second iteration that also still included Robot Man. It's complicated, you know, you listen, listen to that episode, it'll give you help, but uh, the people that we see in this scene are Celsius, who is Arane Desai Calder, who first appeared in Showcase number 94, September 1977, was created by Paul Kupperberg and Joe Staten. She's an Indian woman with powers of controlling her body temperature and producing heat or and or cold, a side effect of being gifted with immortality by her husband, Niles the Chief Calder, on their wedding day created her own Doom Patrol team after learning of the deaths of the originals. Speaking of originals, Robot Man, Clifford Cliff Steele, first appeared in My Greatest Adventure number 80, June 1963, and was created by Arnold Drake, Bob Haney, and Bruno, Bruno Primiani. Hmm. Race car driver Cliff Steele suffered a horrible accident while racing in the appropriately named Speedway City, <laughs> which would have been fatal if not for Niles Calder saving his brain and plopping it into the head of a robotic body. Winds out that winds up that he survived the sacrifice in Codsville, Maine. Right, and even in this seat, I think he has the old—I mean, the '70s costume the, with yeah, the, the, pointy the antennas. Car, yeah. But uh, yeah, he's had a different different looks over the years. Now we said we would talk about the team of people that were involved in Haunted Tank, and here they are. Uh, as we said before, Haunted Tank's first appearance was GI Combat number 87, May 1961, created by Kaniger and Russ Heath. But the crew, the military crank crew during World War II, which was aided by the ghost of Sir Sergeant Jeb Stewart's ancestor Confederate soldier, J.E.B. Stewart. So this is the other people. Uh, Sergeant Bill Craig, who was William Craig, first appeared in GI Combat number 244, August 1982, and was created by Robert Kaniger and Sam Glansman. Sergeant in the U.S. Army with over 30 years of service. He signed on as a member of the Haunted Tank after the death of former driver Slim Stryker. He's the father of... Eddie Craig. Edward Craig first appeared a few months after his father in GI Combat number 251. This is March 1983 and was created by the same guys. Like we said, he's the son of Bill Craig and he is a private in the mm. Army. As Gus Gray, he first appeared in G.I. Combat number 160, April 1973, and was created by Archie Goodwin and Sam Glansman, loader for the Haunted Tank, who replaced Corporal Ash Asher, who had been killed in combat. Yeah, Rick Rollins. Richard Rollins first appeared in G.I. Combat 87, May 1961, created by Kaniger and Heath. He's another crew member for the tank. Yeah, it takes a lot of people to run a tank, apparently. Yeah. <laughs> Now the Metal Men, one of my favorites. First appearance was Showcase number 37, April 1962, created by Robert Kaniger and Ross Andrew. All the members we're going to list had the same first appearance and the same creative team, so we'll just talk, say their names. 
It's a team of liquid metal robots, each representing a different metallic element. Created by robotic expert Dr. Will Bagnus. Uh, we start with Gold, considered smartest of the metal men and often deferred to as leader in Will Magnus's absence. We got Iron, who's the strong man of the metal men. We got Lead, who's the slow-witted slow but most eager member of the metal men. Mercury, the hothead of the metal men, who will always remind you that Mercury is the only metal that is liquid at room temperature. Yeah, it's a fact I will probably never forget, having read Metal Men comics. <laughs> Platinum is the female metal man, who is infatuated with Dr. Magnus. And Tin is, of course, Tin is the metal man with the lowest self-esteem. Sad. Uh, we got the Sea Devils. They're a team of deep-sea adventurers and environmentalists. Uh, their first appearance was Showcase Number 27, August 1960, created by Robert Kaniger and Russ Heath. They do a lot of stuff together. Uh, all four members made their first appearances there. Sorry, uh, Biff Bailey, remember, member of the Sea Devils. Uh, since there isn't a whole lot of interesting things to discuss about old Biff, we can mention he's rumored to be a partial inspiration for The Thing from the Fantastic Four. We got Dane Dorrance, the leader of the Sea Devils, whose father was lost at sea while while he was still a boy. Fo following in his lost father's footsteps into sea uh, exploration, his father is eventually found and revealed to be the villain Captain X. He's eventually snapped out of it, and they join forces against some some big evil, I suppose. Oh, okay. Uh, Dane also served as part of the Forgotten Heroes and is rumored to be a partial inspiration for Mr. Fantastic of the Fantastic Four. And he is married to... Uh, Judy Walton, who, guess what, is rumored to be a partial inspiration for the Invisible Woman from, from the Fantastic Four. And she's the sister of... Nikki Walton, or the rumored inspiration for the Human Torch of the Fantastic Four. Hey, we got a we got a story. This to actually was, this Ooh. actually wasn't just a list of characters. That actually was part of a comic book. Amazingly, <laughs> <laughs> now back on Earth, Lois Lane is reporting for WGBS TV, the only game in town, really, and is interviewing Tomahawk. He first showed up in Star Spangled Comics number 69, this is June 1947, by Joe Samachin and Edmund Good. Uh, Thomas Hawkins fought in the French-Indian War under George Washington and learned proficiency with using the tomahawk. Also, his face sort of looks like a tomahawk. It does. It's got tomahawks <laughs> all around. <laughs> On the satellite, Dr. Light insists that Katana translate the endless doomsday warnings being spoken by Alexander Luther, Pariah, and Harbinger. This is when we noticed they brought... Every supervillain to this meeting, too, Chris. Oh, no. So we see Abracadabra. This is Citizen Abra first appeared in Flash number 128, May 1962 cover, and was created by John Broom and Carmine Infantino. He's a magician from the 64th century, which is pretty bad news for him because the 64th century is so far advanced that magic isn't all that popular a form of entertainment. And so he heads back to the 20th century where magic is marginally more popular. Uh, Alexei Luther, the Lex Luther of Earth 2. First appearance, Action Comics number 23, April 1940, created by Siegel and Schuster. Uh, he took over several small European countries during World War II. However, Superman, this is Cal L, no E, uh, put a stop to all that, and they, you know, they, they bumped into each other a few times through yeah. the years. Yeah, I think it was only like three or four in the very early Golden Age. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, Big Sur, the cleverly named Doofus P. Ratchet, made his first appearance in the recent to crisis to this issue, Flash number 338, October 1984, 
which was also one of our pre-crisis monitor appearances. And in fact, the armor he wears was supplied by the monitor. He was created by Carrie Bates and Carmine Infantino. Ratchet was a malformed gland, has a malformed gland in his brain, lending to his tremendous size and well below average mental acumen. Yeah, Blockbuster. Mark Desmond, first appearance, Detective Comics 345, November 1965, created by Gardner Fox and Carmine Infantino, a scrawny chemist who experimented with strength serums to make himself bigger. And it worked. It only cost him his mind and power to speak. Oh, that's all. Uh, without his wits, Mark was used to commit crimes by his brother, Roland. Brainstorm, who is also really Axel Storm, uh, they totally missed the boat on naming him Brian Storm, but whatever, first appeared in Justice League of America number 32, December 1964 cover, and was created by Gardner Fox and Mike Sikowski. Storm uses a special helmet that has a conic shape with a orbit the tip to absorb stellar energy. His initial run uh, in their league had him trying to steal their powers and redistribute them to ordinary folks. Brother Blood. Sebastian Blood the Eighth was, as you might imagine, the Eighth Brother Blood. Uh, he first appeared in New Teen Titans number 21, July 1982, just like the Monitor. He was, of course, created by Marvin George. He's the High Priest of the Church of Blood, a rank which can only be gained through patricide. Uh, he's also an emissary to Trigon the Terrible. Nice. Captain Boomerang, who is George Digger Harkness, his first appearance was Flash... Number 117, December 1960 cover, created by John Broom and Carmine Infantino. A staple of the Flash's rogues gallery, Digger became handy with the boomerang while laying low from the law in the Australian outback. After the heat died down, Harkness found himself a spokesman for his estranged biological father, W.W. Wiggins' toy boomerang. And that's where he got his costume and probably the name Captain Boomerang. I don't know. Mm -hmm. uh, now, while on the subject of the rogues, let's cover a few more. We got Captain Cold. Lennett Snot first appeared in Showcase Number 8, June 1957. It was created by John Broom and Carmine Infantino. While searching for a way to slow down the flash, he came upon an article which theorized that Cyclotron would do the trick. Why would you publish an article? Yeah. Try how to, yeah. Hey, you know that guy who's saving our lives? Well, this is how you that's, stop him. That's like that book OJ was going to do, right? You know, I didn't, I didn't <laughs> stop I the flash, <laughs> but if I was going to, this is how I'd do it. Now, Snod attempts to build one of these cyclotrons and accidentally comes up with a freeze gun instead and totally changes course to be a cold-themed villain. Uh, his origin scene has him brainstorming names, which is pretty funny. He yep. thinks about calling himself Mr. Arctic or the Cold Wave or Sub-Zero mm -hmm. or the Human Icicle, which makes you wonder what could have been. Oh, God, I would love if he was Sub-Zero. Think about the Mortal Kombat problems. Oh, yeah. well, one thing, not that it matters tremendously, but he's also another one like um, Killer Frost where he doesn't actually project ice. Yeah, he, he just can He removes heat. Removes heat, that's and, right. Uh, yeah, but... It, the effect is virtually the same as someone shooting ice. Don't worry about it. Uh, Mirror Master. This is Samuel Sam Joseph Scudder. First appearance, Flash number 105, March 1959. Created by John Broom and Carmine Infantino. Former Mirror Factory worker who accidentally mixed the wrong chemical in with whatever chemicals are used to make a mirror. Silver nitrate, sugar, ammonia, and sodium, sodium hydroxide. Wow, you, really, you knew that right off the bat, huh, Chris? I didn't know you made a lot of mirrors. Uh, yeah, those. Uh, he found the wrong mirror and had a special, and that, he found this wrong mirror had special qualities with which he could create a variety of effects so he could commit crimes. 
Sure. Uh, the Weather Wizard. Weather Wizard. <laughs> Mark Marden. First appearance, Flash 110, January 1960. Created by John Broom and Carmine Infantino. Former small-time criminal who happened upon a wand with which he can manipulate weather. He initially attempted to take over the country by setting up weather control stations across the U.S., and wouldn't you know it, he wasn't successful. Now the Catwoman, and Chris and I wrestled with this one, because <laughs> despite the fact that she's wearing the Golden Age Catwoman duds, we're pretty sure that this is what was then the modern version, the yeah. Silver Ages version. Kind of has to be, because I both throw back, yeah. So, and she was, yeah, there were stories at the time of her wearing the old costume as backup, so... We're just going to say it is, and it's Catwoman, who was actually canned from appearing in comic books for a long time due to the comics code, because there was a Golden Age one. Uh, but because of the Batman TV show's popularity in the 60s, Selina Kyle came back to comics in Superman's Girlfriend, Lois Lane, number 70, November 1966, by Leo Dorfman and Kurt Schaffenberger. Her origin to this point is that... She likes cats and is really good at stealing stuff. Uh, she also has plenty sexual tension with Batman, even through mm -hmm. the, the comics, but that's pretty much it. Sure. Uh, Cheetah. This is the Earth 2 Cheetah. Priscilla Rich, who first appeared in Wonder Woman number 6, way back in September 1943, and was created by William Moulton Mostyn and Harry G. Peter. She was a debutante with a fragile ego who didn't get along well with Wonder Woman. Uh, Rich had set up an escape act situation for Wonder Woman, which she overcame, and then even got accolades by from Rich's boyfriend, Courtly Darling. Courtly? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Is that a real name? I never heard... Now, this caused Priscilla's mind to snap completely, leading to her to embrace her hidden personality of the cheetah. She'd attempt to take over Paradise Island and be unsuccessful. She'd be sent to Transformation Island for reformation. Weird. <laughs> Copperhead, real name, unknown. First appearance is Brave and the Bold, number 78, in June 1968, created by Bob Haney, by Bob's Haney and Brown. A member of the secret society of supervillains with talents such as she's a, uh, or he's a contortionist and a escape artist. We are Kung, a Japanese assassin. Thomas Morita first appeared in Wonder Woman number two thirty-seven. This is November nineteen seventy-seven. Was created by Jerry Conway and Jose Delbo. Kung fought against the All Star Squadron and at one time attempted to assassinate Prime Minister Winston Churchill. Uh, he was also present in Hiroshima on the day the bombs were dropped. Mist, real name is unknown, but has gone by Jonathan Smythe, Nimbus, and Andy Murphy. First appearance is Adventure Comics number 67, October 1941, created by Gardner Fox and Jack Burnley. Arch enemy to Starman, this is the Ted Knight Starman, which would have been, no, that would not have been the only Starman around, but the, that's the one we're talking about, who created a chemical serum to render people and objects invisible. When the United States government passed on his invention, he turned to the Axis powers. We got, now this is a weird one, we got Ocean Master, who's Orm Marius, and first appeared in Aquaman number 29, this is October 1966, by Bob Haney and Nick Cardi. It's the half-brother to Aquaman, who was Orin, I guess is the Golden Age Aquaman? Maybe. And they, they have the same father, who is Atlan the Wizard. So, <laughs> I don't know if that was like a Golden Age thing, and then in the Silver Age, they changed it to where he, Orm Curry, is the son of Tom Curry, the same father as Arthur Curry, and Mary O'Sullivan, which makes him 100% human, has no, uh, you know, Atlantean blood in him, but he, he's still a jerk. 
And why they name him Orm then? You know, if you're a <laughs> well, well, I mean, he's from New England, right? They're the same place. Uh, yeah, it's. Uh, I believe what happened here is the Golden Age never got updated for the Silver Age, but after Could Crisis, be, I think it to got. Figure out a way. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Penguin. This is Oswald Cobblepot made his first appearance in Detective Comics number 58, December 1941 cover created by Bob Kane and Bill Finger. Uh, most likely drawn by Jerry Robinson, but not uncredited. Hmm. Uh, criminal and underworld advisor with an obsession for birds and umbrellas. Of note, his civilian name was first revealed in the Batman newspaper strip in a great story where he actually, ha- his mom comes to visit and Batman has to pretend that Penguin isn't a criminal. Oh. Yeah, it's, <laughs> that's, it's, that's it's worth a great one. Down. Yeah, it really is cool. <laughs> We got a Per Degaton. First appearance, All Star Comics number 35 by John Broom and Erwin Hassan, or Hassan. He was a member of the Time Trust. They were a group of scientists who built a time ray to send members of their team into the future to procure defense against the bombs of World War II. Uh, Losing against the Justice Society, Per Degaton sabotages the bomb proof shield and quits the trust. Uh, he would later work for Project M, where he would meet the time-traveling robot Mechanique, and uh, we will get to her another time. Yeah. Uh, Plastique, Betty San Sushi, first, or Suchi, first appeared in Firestorm, Volume 2, Number 7, December 1982 cover, and was created by Jerry Conway and Pat Broderick. This is a violent Canadian political activist who could generate explosive blasts. Poison Ivy. Pamela Isley first appeared in Batman 181, June 1966, by Robert Kaniger and Sheldon Moldoff. Uh, she studied botany in university, and as as all Silver Age students do, she fell in love with her professor, Mark mm-hmm. Legrand. Uh, she attempted to assist him with a project by stealing some herbs from a museum, but Mark turned on her, poisoning her with her own stolen herbs. Oh. <laughs> That's always the way. Uh, she would survive and as a result, become immune to all poisons, which is perfect segue to turning to a life of crime. What else are you going to do with it? This is also another right? character that first appeared on the 66 TV show mm. and was and was ported over. You can kind of tell from the costume which of these characters were on that TV show, you know what I mean? They all <laughs> have a similar look. Ragdoll. Peter Merkel first appeared in Flash Comics number 36, December 1942, by Gardner Fox and Lou Furstadt. Uh, born with triple jointedness, <laughs> Peter would become a circus contortionist. Decided to hide in a department store to size as a rag doll so he could rob it after closing. Fair enough. We got the Riddler, Edward Nashton, a.k.a. Edward Enigma, first appeared in Detective Comics number 140. It's way back in October 1948 and was created by Bill Finger and Dick Sprang. The criminal, criminal with a gimmick of providing clues to law enforcement and dudes dressed like bats. He does so out of a, com- a compulsive obsession to prove that he's smarter than everyone else, and unfortunately, he's not. He is not. Samurai. This is Sumo the Samurai. First appeared in Superman vs. Wonder Woman, all-new collector's edition, volume 1, January 1978, by Jerry Conway and Jose Luis Garcia Lopez. A Japanese supervillain during World War II fought against Wonder Woman and the All-Star Squadron, and worships Hirohito as a god, even though he's been dead for... 70 years now, or 60 years. <laughs> we got Silver Swan. Helen Alejandros first appeared in Wonder Woman number two, two, 
288, <laughs> easy for me to say, February 1982 by Roy Thomas and Jean Colon. Named after Helena Troy, grew up something of an ugly duckling, which halted her progress as a prima ballerina. That's why I turned to crime. <laughs> uh, she cried out, literally, for vengeance against men, and Mars, the god of war, answered. He transformed her into the beautiful silver swan with the condition that if she would like this transformation to be permanent, she must kill Wonder Woman. If she fails, all's not lost. She can still transform to silver swan, but only for one hour at a time. So we're guessing that she has yeah. to enjoy those hours as yeah. they come. Long story short, she can only turn into two silver swan <laughs> one hour at a time. Uh, Solomon Grundy, based loosely on an English nursery rhyme collected and published in 1842 by James Orchard Hallowell. So Cyrus Gold was born on a Monday, but first appeared in All-American Comics number 61, October 1944, and was created by Alfred Bester and Paul Reinman. He's an undead supervillain with several theorized origins. He was a wealthy merchant who was murdered and had his body dumped in Slaughter Swamp, where it reanimated 50 years later. Or he was killed by a blackmailing pimp and dumped in Slaughter Swamp, where it reanimated 50 years later. Uh, there are also other origins which bring the Parliament of the Trees into question, but those haven't even happened yet. But we do know he was reanimated in 1944 and Grundy Gold turned to crime. All he could remember about his past life was that he was born on a Monday, and hence that. And he used to be uh, Alan Scott, Green Lantern villain. Yep. And then uh, um, more of a Batman or general villain. Sure. We got Star Sapphire. Now, this is actually the Golden Age version, who debuted in All Flash Comics number 32. This is December, January 1947, by Robert Kaniger and Lee Elias. She claims to be a queen from the seventh dimension and attempts to conquer Earth by destroying all the plant life, which would cause the Earth to run out of oxygen. The Silver Age, yeah, that's good. That's a pretty decent uh, plan. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> now, the Silver Age star sapphire would be Carol Ferris, but we guess she wasn't, you know, feeling like uh, putting on the duds. Yeah, she didn't really get invited or something, but. Uh... We do see her later in the series. Ultra Humanite, real name unknown, alias Dolores Winters, first appeared all the way back in Action Comics number 13, June 1939, and was created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. Suffered body degradation as a result of his mind continuing to expand and develop, and so created a surgical process to transfer his brain into other bodies. And that that hardly gives him his due. I mean, he was he was basically Superman's first villain. Oh first yeah, super villain. and he, and he recurred quite a, quite a bit. And as I remember, he was really mean. You know what I mean? Like yeah. he, he wanted to enslave the world. He wanted to burn down cities. He was he was no Luther with yeah. his like metered uh, villainry. Yeah, he was a messed up yeah. character. And being a being a post crisis kid like I am, I always assumed that he was in that body of a white ape. No, but he wasn't. Yeah. <laughs> that was only a fairly recent, uh, you know, thing to happen to him. Right. Uh, but uh, yeah, he's a real bad dude, and we didn't really give him his due because it's very confusing. <laughs> uh, <laughs> let's jump over to the Brotherhood of Evil, a subtly named team of supervillains and thorns in the side for the Doom Patrol and later the Teen Titans. Uh, first appearance, My Greatest Adventure, number eighty-six, March nineteen sixty-four, created by Arnold Drake and Bruno Primiani. Yeah, the members of this team are The Brain, real name is Unknown, leader of the Brotherhood of Evil. After his death, his assistant saved his brain and was able to preserve it in a liquid-filled container. That happens a lot. That's kind of the way yeah. you kind of preserve brains in comics and uh, sci-fi movies. The accident that causes death may have been engineered by Niles Calder, but that's, we don't know. Yeah. 
We got Monsieur Malheur. Malheur is a super intelligent gorilla who has a machine gun and a beret. Uh, he's got a close association with the brain, uh, romantic even. Hey, now you're giving away and, future stuff here. And, and almost and almost painfully so when Judd Winnick is writing it. Now you're really giving away future stuff here. <laughs> uh, Plasmus. This is Otto von Firth, who appeared in New Teen Titans number 14 as a German miner who suffered a cave-in in a cave full of radioactive radium. While convalescing, he was kidnapped by former Nazi soldier General Zal, who was also a Doom Patrol villain, and performed experiments on him, leaving him a walking pile of protoplasm. We got Whoop. Emile LaSalle, that's another one from New Teen Titans 14, is a French villain, as you might imagine, who has the powers to open warp portals. Now, here's another supervillain team, the Fatal Five. These, uh, this is for the Legion of Superheroes, the 30th century villains assembled by the Legion of Superheroes to help stop the Sun Eater. The Sun Eater. Their first appearance was in Adventure Comics number 352, January 1967 cover, created by Jim Shooter and Kurt Swan. After helping save the world, they attempted to conquer it. Yes, we got the Persuader, Nyun Shantai, wielder of the Atomic Axe, which can cut through anything, even intangible things like gravity and sure. air supplies, that all makes crazy sense. stuff. Yeah. We got Tharak, a cyborg from the planet Zadron, who destroyed the left half of his body when he attempted to steal a nuclear device. And the big fellow on that team is Validus. This is Garidian Rands, future son of Lightning Lad and Saturn Girl, who was kidnapped by, at birth by Darkseid. This is following the Great Darkness Saga and sent back in time, which we mean to the 30th <laughs> century, and cursed with a giant monstrous body, but still with the mind of an infant. Darkseid hoped that the child would kill his future parents. Time paradox what? Yeah, it would be messed up. <laughs> Let's do another five. All right. The Fearsome Five. This is a group assembled by Dr. Light. This is Arthur Light, the, the, the male Dr. Light, to take down the Teen Titans. First appearance, New Teen Titans number three, January 1981, created by Marv Wolfman and George Perez. Our dome-headed friend, Poseidon, would take over as leader following the, their initial defeat at the hands of the Titans. We've got Gizmo, Micron O'Genius. If his name isn't a total tip-off, he's a dwarf genius who can convert just about anything into usable machinery. Yeah, he wears a little little uh, green outfit, right? Cute little outfit, yeah, a little tunic. Uh, mammoth. This is Baron Flinders. is a mutant and a mammoth of a man and a brother to Shimmer, which is Celinda Flinders, also a mutant with the powers of transmuting elements for up to three minutes. She and her brother Baron are both Australian and were put in the care of Dr. Helga Jace, an associate of the Outsiders, during their youth. Back to the story. <laughs> Alexander Luther explains what's happening. Namely, that Earth 1 and 2 are colliding slowly. Warlord steps up, steps forward to refute Alexander. Uh, now we have a new cameo. You have to have his cameo, right? Yeah. <laughs> okay, so, Warlord... This is uh, Travis Morgan. He debuted in First Issue Special Number 8, November 1975, by Mike Grell. Vietnam War veteran pilot Travis Morgan passed through a hole in the Earth's crust while flying over the North Pole in 1969 and landed in the underground world of Skataris, where he dresses like a disco barbarian and dispatches monsters. Yeah. Uh, then Phantom Stranger pops into the seat and tells Warlord to chill out. Aye, aye, aye. And his appearance even startles the creeper So you know it, was, it must have been shocking 
Uh, Phantom Stranger debuted in Phantom Stranger number one, August, September 1952, by John Broom and Carmine Infantino. It must have been actually 62. I think that was a typo. Hmm. Uh, there's really no origin explanation for the Phantom Stranger to this point. He just sort of pops into view whenever something dire or instructive is happening. Four possible origins were posted in, uh, posited in Secret Origins number 10 that came out in January 1987, but nothing was made canon even to this story. Uh, Alexander notes that this affects not just Earths 1 and 2, but every planet within those universes. Now, Green Arrow worries about the planet Ron, where Adam and Alana Strange live. Adam Strange first appeared in Showcase number 17, November 1958, by Julie Schwartz and Murphy Anderson. Archaeologist Adam Strange suddenly teleported from Peru, on Earth, of course, to the planet Ron through a Zeta beam, becoming its champion and winning the heart of Princess Alana. The beam wore off, and Adam was teleported back to Earth, but he got a schedule of the Zeta beam touchdowns that he'd be able to follow to get back to Rand for short times. Adam and Alana are dealing with a similar problem as Earth, except alienized. Uh, The heroes chatter among themselves about what to do next. Alexander Luther says he'll send them back to Earth so they can decide. Yeah, on on Rand, it's like the same thing. It's like, you know, where we have a... Uh, dinosaurs stomping around a old mm-hmm. medieval village with a so they have like the alien version like alien dinosaurs time around alien yeah. ancient village it's very silly ran one and ran two so uh the heroes are still seem pretty skeptical about alexander uh his thing his idea to help save the universe but they're still willing to hear him out superman of earth 2 says if they can save the worlds that remain they will Exactly what you'd expect, Superman. Right, really. On Earth, Lana Lang is to interviews a guy in a powdered wig on his way to sign the Declaration of Independence. And a young woman <laughs> from the 30th century, born on May 13th, 2946, in fact, and a caveman who bites Lana's microphone. Uh, on Oa, the sky is red, lightning is coursing through it, and the Green Lantern's power rings don't work. They arrive in some kind of spacecraft. I mean, you think that by now they'd notice steer clear of spaceships. Seems like you get your ring yanked every time you fly one. Yeah. So let's talk about the Green Lantern Corps. This is that bunch of space cops that wield green power rings and take orders from the Guardians on planet Oa. Uh, these um, Some members of that are Arisia first showed up in Tales of the Green Lantern Corps, number one, May 1981, by Mike W. Barr, Len Wein, and Joe Staten. She's part of a rare Green Lantern lineage from planet Grexos 4 and is a younger member of the Corps. And yes, she dated Hal Jordan. Let's move on. We're not going to talk about that. No, we don't need to talk about that. We got Kat Matui. She first appeared in Green Lantern number 30, July 1964, covered by John Broom and Gil Kane. She led a rebellion against Sinestro on their home planet Korrigar and uh, was good enough to be a Green Lantern. Tomar Ray, old beak-faced, fin-head, squid-eyes, first appeared in Green Lantern number 6, May-June 1961 cover by John Broom and Gil Kane. He was a scientist on planet Zudar, and then he became a Green Lantern. He was unable to stop the destruction of Krypton. Oh, wow. uh, we got Chip, C-H apostrophe P, mm-hmm. first appeared in Green Lantern number 148, January 1982, by Paul Kupperberg and Don Newton, a native of the planet Colvin, he participated in the defense of his homeworld from an invasion by the Crabster Army of Dr. Ubix. <laughs> now, <laughs> you know, Chip is a uh, like a cartoon squirrel. Yeah. And uh, I, I guess, like, Ubix was, like, 
Walt Disney's part is a reference to Walt Disney's oh, yeah. former partner. Yeah, who, UBI Works. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, UBI Works. Mm-hmm. So they, I guess that's part of the uh, the play oh, here. But I uh, never thought of that. Interesting. Yeah. Now the uh, the Guardians rescued him and gave him the power gave him the power ring of his predecessor, who died in battle against the Crabsters. And he looks like a cross between a chipmunk and a squirrel, more chipmunk than squirrel, but a cartoon either right. way. Yeah, exactly. They're not realistic and cartoony. Yeah. Now, on Oa, they find the Guardians held in a giant yellow stasis beam right next to the big lantern. And there's a big green explosion. Uh-oh. On Earth-1, Lois Lane is menaced by a saber-toothed tiger, but Superman of Earth-2 shows up and gives it an uppercut. <laughs> Superman of Earth-1 and Superman of Earth-2 are able to pull a twinsies prank on Lois. <laughs> Uh, as Superman of Earth-1 explains that time and space are merging, we see the Time Masters dealing with the chronal chaos. Hey, the Time Masters. <laughs> this group first appeared in Showcase Number 20, May 1959, cover by Jack Miller and Ruben Morera, with an assist by editor Jack Schiff. Rip Hunter and his pals travel through time in a time sphere having adventures. Uh, Rip Hunter, uh, all, at this time he's portrayed as a, an ordinary man who uses his invention, the time sphere, to travel through time. His backstory will fill in a lot after Crisis. Certainly. We got uh, Bonnie Baxter. Her parents died when she was young, so she had to raise her younger brother, Corky. She fell in with Rip Hunter after being expelled from another university. Jeffrey Smith is an expert in temporal mechanics, as evidenced by having a haircut you could set your watch by. (laughs) And Corky Baxter is Bonnie's kid brother, whose hijinks cause all sorts of trouble for the Time Hunters. Now, over at Wayne Manor, several heroes from Monitor's satellite have been zapped down to see a cave has appeared inside the mansion, and cave people are streaming out of it. It's mayhem all over the world, even in Russia, where Red Star chucks a boulder at a Tyrannosaurus Rex. Red Star, formerly known as Starfire, and actually named Leonid Konstantinovich. I'm glad you had to do that one. Kovar. <laughs> I was on the middle name. <laughs> uh, first appeared in Teen Titans number 18, December 1968, by Len Wein, Marv Wolfman, and Bill Drought. Leonid and his astrophysicist father examined a downed spaceship that exploded and gave Leon superpowers, including strength, super speed, and the ability to fire bolts from his hands. He changed his name to Red Star so as not to be confused with the new Teen Titan Starfire, though if you stood them next to each other, there would be no confusion. None at all. Uh, At the same time, Killer Frost has gone cold on Firestorm. (laughs) 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 Professor Stein surmises that Psycho Pirate's emotional spell has faded. Aboard the Anti-Monitor satellite, he's putting Red Tornado through some changes changing him into what he was meant to be, according to the Anti-Monitor. The Flash offers to take the place of Red Tornado, since it looks like this change is torturous. In the end, the Red Tornado no longer exists. Mm, We will see something, we'll see him again later, something like him. Mm -hmm. On Earth, people are starting to realize that dimensions are colliding as well as time, and Brainiac surmises that this, Brainiac 5 that is, that this this could create a situation. A big Red Tornado, but... Not the Red Tornado Becomes cruising <laughs> through the storm clouds Menacing the Earths Zatanna, Johnny Thunder's Thunderbolt Sargon the Sorcerer and Dr. Fate Try to quell the storm with magic And it actually seems to work Jay Garrick Flash uh, discovers Red Tornado's Lifeless body in the wreckage of a home This is also the first time we see Yolanda Montez who will eventually become The new Wildcat She actually assists Wildcat in saving a child So she passed the test now, after all this carnage, everyone decides to take Harbinger and company's offer, and hey, why not? Let's save the world. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, on the satellite, Alexander Luther has assembled a specific group of heroes for a special mission. We got Starfire, Hawkman of Earth 2, Dr. Light, Northwind, and Steel. They are to save one of the last three threatened Earths, so there there can be five remaining, because five is you know better than three. We guess the, the more the merrier, right? I guess. <laughs> Suddenly, the satellite shakes apart and disintegrates. It's all due to the whim of the Anti Monitor, our big bad, who finally reveals himself on the last page, and this is the you know first time he he calls the Monitor here. At, He's the only one left, probably. Yeah, I guess. I mean, yeah. we all know him as the anti-monitor, but... Yeah, you know, he, he, but he might as well just call himself the monitor now. It's a good enough. There's nothing to know. be anti. Yeah. We're, we're going we're gonna to still call him anti-monitor, but he does actually refer to himself as monitor, yeah. I think, throughout. And I also... I, this is like the first time Psycho Pirate and the Flash see him fully. <laughs> I just, know, they've been hanging out Just hilarious. Him. You've been in the same room with this guy for like, <laughs> I feel like, days now, you know? Like, you <laughs> never, never thought to like get a better look at him. <laughs> so we actually finished that issue. Uh, oh. Smokes. Let's uh, let's get go into the crossover issues for this one. Uh, we got All Star Squadron number fifty three to fifty six, January to April nineteen eighty six, by Roy Thomas, Dan Thomas, Mike Clark, and Arvell Jones. Here, the worlds continue to collapse. Uh, we see an extended version of the battle against an anti monitor controlled red tornado. A Harbinger dispatches Liberty Bell, Green Lantern, the Alan Scott one, Power Girl, Per Degaton, Star Sapphire, and Deathbolt on a mysterious mission. Then Harbinger sends Firebrand and a group of heroes from Earth's past to Cape Canaveral in an attempt to prevent a group of Native Americans from stealing a space shuttle. Infinity Inc. number 22, January 1986, by Roy Thomas, Dan Thomas, and Todd McFarlane. Uh, the scene aboard uh, the Monitor satellite in Christ on Infinite Earths 5 is shown in more detail. Uh, we got Swamp Thing number 46, March 1986, by Alan Moore and Steve Bissett. John Constantine and Swamp Thing marvel at the collision of time happening right before their eyes. John and Swampy are teleported on board uh, Monitor satellite. Alexander Luther explains that he needs Swamp Thing to handle the spiritual side of this multiversal crisis, and then sends him back to do just that. And that now puts us on the, on the cusp of issue six. <laughs> I know. Oof. That was a mouthful. And it, I mean, it actually has, you know, our voices sound like we've been giving a speech for two, three hours, which is basically <laughs> what we've been doing. So, uh, that was quite a comprehensive list. That was only, again, the people that we saw. There are other mm -hmm. characters to be named and described in future episodes, but this will probably be the big character dump. The dump, yeah. Um, if you have any, you know, you think we got something wrong, or you think that we missed a character, or have anything to say about what you've just heard, please... Write to us at weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash cosmic t-mill history and on Twitter at cosmic t-mill. I'm on Twitter at Reggie Reggie. I'm at Ace Comics. Uh, you can see our weekly writings at weirdsciencedccomics.com. And I tell you every week that you should check uh, Chris's personal blog. Chris is on infiniteearths.com. Which he, where he reviews a different DC comic every day, and there's been sort of tie-ins to this series that we're mm -hmm. doing now. You, well, you did do Crisis Eight, right? Number seven. Seven. Yeah. Okay. So that was like that was a couple a week or two ago. But yeah, some of these some of these issues that we've been kind of calling out, they're showing up on his blog. So it's a good addendum to go <laughs> check it out. But uh, I tell you, Chris, I don't think we have anything more for him, do we? 
<laughs> well, uh, people who've been with us from the beginning know that we started as Weird Comics History, and uh, we sometimes put those out on Tuesdays, and this Tuesday we're putting that's one out. That's right, that's right. We are... <laughs> We are putting one out, and it's it's the well. You can tell them about it, Chris. Go yeah, ahead. it's uh, we are going to explore, to our knowledge, every single pre-crisis Infinite Earth, <laughs> and yeah. that's uh, not counting anything post-crisis, of course. And uh, it's a lot of imaginary stories that have been repurposed into actual alternate Earths, mm-hmm. and uh, it's a it's a good time, and it's. Hopefully interesting and uh, entertaining. Yeah, we had a lot of fun with it. A lot, of, a lot of the scenarios presented are ludicrous, even from a comic book standpoint. Sure. Uh, so definitely check that out on Tuesday. I guess it'll probably be early in the morning. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, we had a good time. And it's sort of, sort of, you know, you don't need to listen to it to get the rest of this series, but they're definitely, you know, connected in that this is the series that wipes all those Earths away. Anyway, (laughs) but if that's all we got for him this week, Chris, I think I'm going to tell everyone to keep it on the treadmill monitorially. Say you. The name game. Shirley, 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 Bo Burley, Banana, Banana, Bo Burley, Be Fine, Mo Merley, Shirley. Lincoln, 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 Bo Bingen, Banana, Banana, Bo Bingen, Be Fine, Mo Mingen. Lincoln Come on everybody I say now let's play a game I bet you I could make a rhyme Out of anybody's name The first letter of the name I treated like it wasn't there But a B or an F Or an M will appear And then I say both at a B Then I say the name Banana fan or in the coat. And then I say.